I would like to welcome today members who are participating by video conferencing um, in order to assist with the social distancing guidelines here in the room. And this morning we are joined uh, by Paula Bradshaw and Colin McGrath at this point, and we may be joined by other members. Um, can I also remind all members about the protocols regarding the use of electronic devices? Um, members, we have received no apologies today, and are members aware of any apologies? No. Okay. Moving on, members, then to chairperson's business. Uh, we have another double meeting today to continue consideration of evidence from our inquiry into care homes. Uh, I just want to advise members that I met with Neve Louise, which is a mental health charity in the Dungannon area. I have received a number of letters from young people who the charity work with, setting out some of their concerns, and I will circulate th those letters to members for consideration, and we maybe, we maybe give them a mention again, but they are very interesting in that they're coming directly from young people expressing their concerns, and I think they're, they're very worth a read. I have se seen some of them at this stage, and they're, they're very uh, informative, and thank you to all the young people who did that for us. Um, we also have our committee motion, which we have agreed, and that is going to be debated in Monday, on Monday in the chamber. The motion that the committee have put forward. So, moving along, then, members, to item three, the draft minutes. I refer you to the draft minutes of the meetings held on the 12th of November, which are tabs 3.1 of your meeting pack. Are members content with those minutes? Yeah. Thank you, members. Uh, there are no matters arising then today from those minutes either. Um, departmental briefing then, members, on Brexit. Uh, I refer members to papers at tab 5 of the pack and your table papers. And I can advise members that officials from the department, the department of Health are here today to update the committee on developments with regard to Brexit. So I'd now like to welcome in person. Thank you. So, members, this morning I would like to welcome Ms. Cathy Harrison, who is the Chief Pharmaceutical Officer, Ms. Patricia Quinn Duffy, who is EU Exit Lead, uh, Reciprocal Healthcare and Workforce Issues, Ms. Fiona Taylor, uh, who is UK EU Exit Lead on Medicines, and Fiona is joining us via video link. Sorry, no, Fiona's, Fiona's here. Sorry, Fiona. So Fiona's here in person with us. We are being joined by Mr. Brenton O'Neill, Head of Information Governance, and that will be on, on computer, on, on video link, and I do see Brenton has joined us on video. And do we have Emer Smith? Is on, Emer Smith is on our video conferencing system also. So Brenton O'Neill is Head of Information Governance, and Emer Smith is Head of Medicines Policy and EU Exit Transition. So. Um, so, good morning, everybody. You're very welcome. Good, good to see you. Good, good to see you in person, and thank you for coming along. Uh, it is it is probably easier for all concerned if we can if we can facilitate that, and, and I, I appreciate the fact that you have done that. So, listen, Cathy, do you want to go ahead and give us your chief your your briefing, and we'll take it from there. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. And um, uh, thanks for the opportunity to come today and for facilitating a face-to-face -face meeting. I think it is it is better given the size of the brief. We did provide a briefing for the committee, and I hope it was helpful. Um, I'm going to talk very briefly just through that. 
briefing and, and summarise the key points, and then they will be available for questions. And I've got um, uh, most of my team here today as well to, to answer the questions for, for the committee. Um, so, uh, a little bit of background to start with. So, the UK left the European Union on the 31st of January of this year and moved into a transition period, which runs until the 31st of December. And this transition period will not be extended. At this moment in time, the UK Government and EU Commission are still involved in negotiations to secure a free trade agreement, and there is a possibility that a full deal may not be agreed by the end of the transition period. And during the transition period, the UK has continued to follow EU law and regulatory processes, but just to remind the Committee that that will change from 1 January 2021, when Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland Protocol to the Withdrawal Agreement will take effect uh, in Northern Ireland. We have been working on EU exit and EU transition for a number of years, and we have identified a number of potential risks and that cover a broad range of health areas, and I'm going to talk through those now and give you an update from our last, the last time we appeared. So, in terms of medicines and medical devices, um, Northern Ireland is part of a UK-wide medicine supply chain, and also we're part of a, a national medicines con medical supplies contingency programme. That's being led by the Department of Health and Social Care, but with full involvement of the devolved administrations. And the UK-wide contingencies are they seek to address the primary risk to the healthcare supply chain, which has been identified as disruption to the supply chain at the short straits in the English Channel. Uh, that could arise as a result of no deal. And during the past two years, extensive national plans have been developed to mitigate possible disruption that could arise as a result of no deal. This has resulted in the development of what is known as a multi-layered approach uh, to UK-wide contingencies, and that involves a range of activities. Um, that are now ready, and uh, we are actually in the point where these are being starting, going to start to be used. Okay, so that includes active support for trader readiness for businesses who trade with the EU. Offer stocks have been held in the UK of at least six weeks stock, additional stock of medicines and additional supplies of other goods. Um, extra ferry capacity, and also in addition to that different routes as well, uh, re, uh, different routes available and an express freight, freight service as well um, from the EU. On the 13th of October, the UK Government announced that it had signed agreements with four ferry operators to provide capacity equivalent to over 3,000 HGVs uh, per week for the transportation of Category 1 goods. Mm -hmm. And it's indicated that those contracts will be in place for up to six months after the end of the transition period. And Category 1 goods include all of our medical goods, and medicines and other medicine supplies. In addition, across the UK, enhanced arrangements are now operating for the surveillance of the whole medical supply chain. And there are associated shortage management systems in place that are now active. MHRA has provided very detailed guidance and a raft of guidance that covers the whole of the UK uh, with specific guidance for Northern Ireland where needed and that's available on the UK Gov website. In addition, regulatory flexibilities have been agreed by the MHRA and that will enable medicines and medical devices to continue to be placed on the market in the UK, um, including a two-year standstill period for medicines and a two-and-a-half-year 
acceptance of CE marks for medical devices. Okay, so that's all the national contingencies. They really form the basis of our preparedness in Northern Ireland. Going on to talk a little bit more detail about Northern Ireland and the Northern Ireland Protocol. The UK is currently aligned with the EU key for medicines and medical devices, and as I said earlier, this is going to change after transition when, the Northern, when Northern Ireland will remain aligned with the EU and Great Britain will not. And there are implications for us in Northern Ireland. Things are going to change um, in terms of the regulation and supply of our medical goods um, that will be permanent. So we'll, we'll have to approach a new normal in time. At the fourth meeting of the Ireland Northern Ireland Specialised Committee on the 5th of November, the UK Government and EU Commission reached an agreement to allow the pharmaceutical industry 12 months from the 1st of January 2021 to comply with the new regulatory requirements, which apply only to Northern Ireland and are as a consequence of the Northern Ireland Protocol. And this includes the requirements relating to falsified medicines directive, qualified person batch testing and importation requirements. And this is a critical decision for Northern Ireland and will allow a phase-in period for the pharmaceutical industry and critically allow more time for our wholesaler chains and pharmaceutical industries to make the business decisions they need to do to adapt their distribution and logistics arrangements. Um, this was considered to be a positive outcome for us and, and as it's expected to uh, remove or uh, vastly reduce, I would should say, the risk of short-term disruption to the medicine supply chain that may have occurred um, in, immediately in the aftermath of end of transition period in Northern Ireland. Now, it wasn't our only contingency, and we weren't fully reliant on the receive, achieving the 12-month phase-in period, and we also had already secured some legal advice in relation to goods on the market that would have provided another layer of contingency for us should we have needed it. And that would have allowed um, medicines that were already placed on the market by the end of the transition period to flow without impediment ac across the UK. And that's something now that we don't think we're going to have to rely on, but it could still be quite useful in some product lines. At this moment in time, we are still working with the Department of Health and Social Care. And particularly, we're waiting for much more detail from that decision that was made on the 5th of November. And when that is received, there will be detailed guidance needed for the industry and, um, and service. And there, is still, there are still unresolved issues, I have to advise the committee, and we're in a very um, active period. I told you that the last time, and we have had significant progress. I hope you would agree since the last time I was here but we really are still waiting for some critical decisions to be made. And one of the issues, I suppose, that we're very focused on now in Northern Ireland is the whole issue of flow of our goods mm. into Northern Ireland. And medicines are not the only issue, medical products. Of course, you know it's much wider, and we're actively working across departments now on some of those issues. Moving on from health um, care supplies to access to health care and workforce. And first of all, the reciprocal health care agreement and there are a range of areas relevant to access and health care um, after EU exit, including continued access by UK citizens to emergency health care in the Republic of Ireland. And the Department and the Department of Health in Dublin are working on an enduring reciprocal health care agreement between UK and Ireland. This will not impact on any current North-South health services, uh, which are based on either a memorandum of understanding or service level agreement. 
The Cross-Border Health Care Directive enables UK citizens to access health care in any EU country and to be reimbursed for this care abroad by their home country currently. And at the end of the transition period, this facility will no longer apply in the UK. Um, if someone has already applied to use the cross-border health care directive before the end of transition, um, the, their treatment will be honoured for up to one year based on certain conditions. And the Department of Health here is considering the policy around application of the principles after the end of transition periods. That's still something we're working on. Um, citizens' rights provisions. Uh, the withdrawal agreement provides a framework for the continued legal residence and rights of EU citizens living in the UK and UK nationals living in the EU at the end of the transition period. And Westminster are coordinating the application of citizens' rights for access to health care. Department of Health is working with DHSC to fully understand what the agreement means for EU citizens. Um, in terms of immigration, um, the committee may be aware that there will be a new points-based system in place from January 2021. And in terms of mutual recognition of professionals' qualifications, citizens' rights agreements are now in place for all current professional registrants and those applying before the end of transition period. And the future arrangements are part of the EU-UK-EU negotiations, so longer-term arrangements are still under negotiation. Important to note that the UK and Ireland have made a commitment within the common travel area that comprehensive measures continue to be in place to allow for the recognition of qualifications. And the UK has provision in place to allow, in the event of no future agreement, that for a period of up to two years, all EEA automatically recognised professions will continue to be automatically recognised by the UK. Uh, moving on then, um, getting close to the end here, uh, okay. Chair, um, with data transfer. On the issue of data sharing, UK government-led discussions continue um, on the UK achieving an adequacy decision. And this, is an this will be an important decision and it's still working towards. And without that, North-South data sharing for health and social care and public services would be subject to additional scrutiny. I have to say we have arrangements in place already through standard contractual clauses and they are in place to cover data sharing currently, Chair. And um, also that further information and more detailed questions on that, if you have them, Brendan would be best placed to answer. Okay. Say more about that. I understand you're getting direct briefing from Food Standards Agency, but just for completeness, I did include um, a few paragraphs on that in mm. the brief, which I'm not going to go into in detail here. Um, and just to update you on where we are with common frameworks, there are four common frameworks relevant to health and social care. They progress, they're progressing well, and the department has already shared the framework summary with the committee for blood safety and quality, and organs, tissues, and cell frameworks. And we ex expect to update the committee on the other two frameworks shortly. The committee will also be aware there are three other common frameworks that are led by the Food Standards Agency. In terms of the wider legislative programme. Um, the current EU transition legislative programme includes 11 statutory instruments, six of which have already been laid and four of which will be laid before the end of the year. Um, there's been an agreement that the Electronic Commerce Directive um, has, will be postponed until January 2021. And finally, just um, an, an update on terms of what we're doing in terms of guidance. Um, the our for readiness within our health and social care providers and organisations. In August last year, we provided very detailed EU exit operational guidance, 
and we've been able to update that now given the recent developments and that is currently in the final stages of being approved through the department and we hope to get that out um, uh, hopefully I'm going to say by the end of this week or early next week and there's um, there's a number of things just that, that the committee may be interested in in terms of how we're going to handle the EU um, transition. It is upon us. It is happening. So we're very much now moving out of a sort of a planning phase into a response phase. And that's very much the, the tone that will be in the operational guidance would be to get ready for, for leaving and for them to update their plans where needed. Um, because a lot of the things haven't changed, like we still have the risk of no deal, that was what the basis of their original plans, so we're not anticipating radical changes. Um, and the key principles that we're advising them on are that, um, first of all, any issues that arise relating to EU exit now in the health service are going to be handled through this, the um, incident response structures, battle rhythms, sit reps and emergency response that we've already got in place for COVID-19 that are working very well. And that will allow the HSC organisations to escalate if they need to any issues up through SITREPS very quickly on a daily basis and right up to two strategic cells that I'm chairing. One is looking at all of our supplies issues and one is looking at the wider um, context of EU transition and that will allow for rapid decision making. Those strategic cells that I'm involved in my, with my team are linked in with national strategic cells and national planning. Um, should we need to respond to any um, unforeseen issues. Obviously, we don't know what's coming, which was best to be prepared and have a plan. Um, also, we will be advising that extensive national contingencies are in place to ensure healthcare supplies. And that means that the huge amount of work that's going on with the pharmaceutical industry and the wholesalers means that we're not asking frontline services to stockpile or take additional action unless asked to do so and we're going into a very intense period in the next few weeks of speaking to our stakeholders and to, to understand specific risks and deal with those in our, plan, in our final stages of planning. Patients and carers can be advised and reassured they don't need to do anything about ordering additional prescription medicines and prescribers do not need to order over prescribe or order sorry provide additional um, quantities of prescriptions. We are asking all our health and social care organisations and providers to put in place enhanced arrangements to monitor their business, as they already have for COVID, and just to be aware of any issues that may arise in relation to EU, and pay particular attention to the supply chains uh, and monitor those. And the department will provide advice where needed on handling any shortages that could arise and to ensure continuity of treatment for patients. Um, so, Chair, thank you very much. That's the end of my uh, briefing, and we're happy now to take questions. Thank you, and thank you for that very wide-ranging briefing, Cathy. Uh, I, I have to say, um, it does actually. There, there is, a, so I think, an increased note of concern around the level of complexity that we're dealing with here. I do, and I did welcome the fact that the uh, the medicines issue was addressed by way of additional time, and I think that was important. But that's only one issue. When, when you hear your briefing there, it, it's clear that's only one part of one issue of a, of a range, an entire range of issues. I am also, I have to say, genuinely concerned that Brexit is now moving into, it would appear, from what, from what you're saying, into an emergency basis on top of COVID that we're already dealing with, and that is being dealt with through incident response structures. Would, is it not genuinely fair to say that the health service is already struggling to such a degree with COVID that to add a second um, major incident 
and the ongoing incident of Brexit is going to create potentially push us beyond breaking point in terms of the health service? Um, Chair, I, I, I accept the complexity issue. I think that is correct. Okay, we're dealing with complexity, and, and it is, it is, there's, it's multifaceted what we're dealing with. Um, my emphasis, I think, for the, for the committee in terms of our preparedness approach here is actually to provide you with assurance, and that is that we already have very good, well-established systems in place here to deal with COVID uh, for the health service. And actually, it's the intention in terms of including EU in those is to avoid additional work for health and social care relating to EU, but to allow any issues that emerge to be rapidly identified and dealt with. So I think what we're doing here is taking a step forward, pragmatic approach, and definitely my uh, intention in all of this planning is not to increase any pressure on health and social care. And the amount of work that is going on in the background, you know, that I mean, most of the work in relation to the contingencies, particularly in the supplies and actually all the other areas, is being done away from the front line intentionally, and that's to prevent pressure, additional pressure on those organisations at this time. We're working very closely with all the armed strength bodies, and we'll continue to do that um, in the coming weeks. And but so I don't think we are. I think it is actually helping them. It was welcomed by the armed strength bodies that we weren't setting up a parallel system and that we would use the existing systems that are tried and tested since March now and are working well. Okay, I just, I just want to check, Cathy. Um, Emer, can you hear us there on the line? And, and I'm wondering if, if we can hear you. Can you indicate if you can hear us? Emer Smith, please. No, we don't seem to be, so maybe... maybe, uh, maybe um, the. Uh, IT can maybe just look into seeing can we get Emer onto the line, but we'll, we'll continue on ahead. And if there's any questions that are specific to Emer, maybe you can go back to them. Um, so, in, in light of that overall overarching concern, Cathy, are there any other areas that you are currently recommending we seek additional time and extended time similar to the medicines issue? The I suppose our main, our, our, well, I'll ask Patricia in case there's anything on her side. But on on this on the supplies side, um, no. If we, I'm looking for the confirmation now from the European Commission on the detail of the decision around the 12 months, and that that was a major decision. That was a major decision, and also we we had requested it, you know, some months ago because I had referred to it. Um, so th with that, with the, with that assurance and the detail of that, I would be. That, I mean, that, that, that they're major steps forward, Chair. They really are for us. But you and I have been discussing since, I think, probably August, July, August, a year ago, at other related issues around qualifications, around the supply of isotopes. And I know that we have had some stakeholders, including the Royal College of Radiologists and Diabetes uh, UK, have recently expressed concerns about contingency plans for imported isotope supplies. So those are equally concerning, and, and do they equally require a, a, a robust framework put in place to protect our population here? So uh, medical radioisotopes are short-life products that can't be stockpiled, and they are they're received into the health service in Northern Ireland, and they're used sometimes on the same day, Chair. So this was one of the areas we looked at, uh, we looked at as part of our planning, uh, you know, possibly over a year ago, and. Northern Ireland benefits from having all of our radioisotopes flown in, and what 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 I can assure you is that that has been reviewed again 
in recent in recent months and we are assured that those systems are robust there's no concern in that area at the at, well there's no concern in that area so we've been through it um, um, in the past and also revisited it recently chair so on that issue there is no additional uh, ask if you like the, you're asking about big the big asks those big asks were for the European Commission and they were significant to secure for us. Other things like medical radioisotopes were operational matters that we could ma handle, and we have handled them. Okay. Um, and just um, and, and I want to get to members. I suppose I do have another couple of questions, but hopefully get back to those. But you said that legal advice had been taken about about uh, ensuring the flow without impediment, and I'm very conscious that we are talking about a buffer stock which is held somewhere in Britain. And the additional problems with the short streets that we've already identified could come in again. It's also a very complex supply chain in terms of temperature control and, and issues like that. Um, and and I'm, I'm also deeply conscious that these issues are as a result of Brexit. You know that that Bre the, the the desire for Britain to leave the European Union are providing are are leaving us with these problems. But you said legal advice had been taken, which ensured that flow of goods without impediment. Is that legal advice? Is that legal advice related to the Internal Markets Bill, which had set out the case that Britain was prepared to break the law? No, this was a legal interpretation of um, Article 41 of the Withdrawal Act, and it related to goods on the market. And the advice that we received, and it was that goods on the market, so medicines that were placed on the market um, uh, by the 31st of December, could continue to flow across the UK. So that was um, an, important, an important interpretation of the law for us, because what that meant was if we hadn't secured the additional 12-month phase-in period, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't have had an immediate crisis in terms of our uh, medicine supply chain and that medicines would have been able to flow. It may still be useful to us in some, because the medicine supply chain is so many products involved, but it may still be useful to us um, because we have 12 months for the pharmaceutical industry now to respond to the compliance with the Northern Ireland Protocol. And you know, there could be still be instances where we might need the, to use that, um, that legal interp interpretation, Chair. But that has nothing, it's nothing to do with the Internal Markets Bill. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to go to members. So I have Pam, uh, I have Pam on the phone first. Uh, yeah, I think some members are having difficulty. Darla, just at the moment, Chair. Okay, so I'll, I'll come, I'll come, I'll come to members in the room then, and we'll come back to when we see the when we see the uh, the screens, the spotlight operating again. So I'm going to move, I'm going to move on. So I'm going to go then to Jonathan. Uh, thank you, Chair, and thank you, Cathy, for the wide-ranging brief. I suppose probably there's a number of questions right across the board that we could ask, ask in this, and I suppose some of the briefing later on will cover even included the legislative consent motion. Uh, I don't know whether to direct those Sorry, questions. Sorry, Jonathan, just a Sorry, I'm, I'm advised we need to suspend the meeting briefly to restore the Starleaf. Okay. Um, okay, so we're going to suspend. Okay, thank you, members. We're, uh, we're, we're back in session. Just before I go back to Jonathan, um, you had said, Cathy, that there was an issue that you maybe would check with Paula in relation to workforce. If there was any from her side of things that, that needed, could we just pick up on yeah. that before we go? There, most of the um, workforce issues are really already captured predominantly in the withdrawal agreement. So a lot of the issues originally had been around the... Um, the sort of the ability to maintain and recognise qualifications uh, in a no-deal scenario. So the work, the 
withdrawal agreement sets that anyone that is already here or has applied beforehand um, is able to maintain the recognition of their qualifications. Um, the UK has laid legislation um, which will allow unilaterally that anyone with an automatically recognised qualification for up to two years to have that qualification recognised. So if we have any Europeans coming into Northern Ireland after January, particularly in healthcare, doctors and nurses are automatically recognised. It means that those qualifications will continue to be so. What is going to be different is that the general um, assessment of qualifications will be different. So, say for example, social workers would have gone through the general assessment. They will now have to go through the assessment that the rest of the world nationals would have to go through for registration. Um, obviously, the uh, recognition of professional qualifications is still part of the negotiations, so there may still be a negotiated outcome that is, is different to that, but there is a contingency in place. We are obviously speaking to um, our Irish counterparts um, in terms of the cross-border services. Um, obviously, healthcare cooperation is something that is is very um, important and has been well established. And to ensure that those continue. Okay, thank, and, and apologies, I should have said okay. Patricia, of course. Um, so I, I get it that again, there's a partial fix in, in place, and that's welcome as far as it goes. Would you be concerned that that will provide a chill factor in terms of us competing to attract in that badly, that much-needed staff? That people say, well, mm -hmm. I might be okay for two years. Do I want to take a chance on that? I'm going to be okay at beyond that point. Given how hard it is in the world, in the world market, in, in that sense of, of staff, have you concerns on that? Uh, there haven't been any concerns raised around the qualifications um, in terms of attracting staff. Obviously, we're in a very different um, environment with COVID in attracting staff. Um, but the UK government have put in place additional factors around immigration currently, where health and care staff um, can apply through a health and care visa, which is a shorter, um, quicker route to become uh, to get a work visa to work in health and social care, they've also waived the immigration health surcharge for health and social care staff. So that again um, makes it slightly more attractive. And the the Europeans coming after January who will have to apply through that process, um, it means that there's a level playing field that they don't have to pay an immigration health surcharge, which they would have would in other professions. Um, so it's slightly more attractive for health and social care professions um, than it would be for, say, other professions um, post uh, 31st of December. Okay, thank you. So I'll go to Jonathan. I will then go to uh, Pam on the phone and back into the room. So I'll go to Jonathan. Thank, thank you, Chair, and again, maybe second time lucky, but firstly, thanks very much for your presentation. Um, I suppose, firstly, the joint agreement on the time extension for the phased uh, implementation of the falsified medicines directive and batch testing is welcome news and, and certainly will give businesses some reassurance and they have time to maybe prepare for, for what is to come. However, it still is unclear whether this will fully mitigate against the risks of declarations of tariffs from the 1st of January on some medicines moving between GB and NI. And could I please put on record, and I, I know this will be the intention, but it is imperative now that the Department of Health 
should be using this grace period agreed to press the UK government to ramp up the case for mutual recognition between the EU and the UK in the area uh, in the medium to long term. I think that's essential. We've got a great grace period now, but we need to use that to best effect. Over the course of this past week or so, Chair, I have been engaging with some GB suppliers in the medicine field, and there is the real concern that the economic threat of GB firms no longer seeing Northern Ireland as attractive or viable market from 2022, that that will cause significant pressure on supply chains. So perhaps maybe you could outline uh, would the shift in supply chains or potential uh, shift pose risks or problems for our health service. I'd also just like to say in relation to the cross-border element, uh, the uncertainties and, uh, and clarity on the way forward, that the fact that Northern Ireland is going to be tied to the EU regime on medicines and a vast range of products yet aren't even able to access cross-border health care under EU directive after the transition period, highlights that the protocol is is certainly not the best of both worlds, as some people were championing. Northern Ireland consumers and patients have got a raw deal. So is there a risk that when the agreed medicines derogation ends in 2022, that the friction between trade moving from GB to NI will ultimately lead to local hospitals and pharmacies uh, sourcing products from the Republic and indeed also the rest of the EU, hence putting pressure on existing supply chains. Uh, thank you, Mr. Berkeley. Um, so the twelve months it was a very is a, is a is a significant step forward. Okay. The pharmaceutical industry asked for it, and they um, see it as an opportunity to put in place um, measured sort of changes in terms of their supply and logistic arrangements. The pharmaceutical industries, are, you know, it isn't, there isn't a, a single approach that they use even currently in terms of their supply chains. And in our conversations with them, and I've been meeting with um, individual companies and also part of national meetings, um, my understanding is there's a range of options that they are considering in terms of what their long-term and more uh, the new normal would look like for Northern Ireland. And um, that some of those options, if they had, had to be rushed, yes, we could, have be, we could have been in a much more risky position than we are now. The 12 months is really significant. Now, some of the companies are telling me 12 months isn't a long, long time. And what I'm doing is I'm working with Department of Health and Social Care to make sure now that we're not stopping. We're not stopping this work. All the work that has been going on in recent months is going to continue now. And we're going to continue at a pace in terms of working with industry understand what's your preferred model a number of different models that they are that are that are that i can uh, i can i can describe if you're if are interested uh, and that they are considering those models ultimately will be business decisions that they'll make what my goal here is that we will can have continued access to all the medicines we have at the moment and that our patients in Northern Ireland and us as citizens have, have equity of access to all new medicines and other medicines in the future. So that, that's how we're entering those talks with DHSC. They know that. And they know that that's where we're starting with in terms of our negotiation with the pharmaceutical industry. And my engagement with the pharmaceutical industry has been very, very positive. Some There are issues. Mr Berkeley, you're right. They, and they now will have more time to work through those. And they will have government support as well for this if needed. Um, but, but I don't think we're going to have a switch from one system where we have now onto one, maybe one single system. 
Okay, and is there an attempt now uh, via the department and indeed the Northern Ireland Executive as a whole to to basically use this grace period as an attempt now to further engage both the central government and the EU Commission as to mutual recognition? Because I think that in itself will pose the best route to ensure security of supply for medicines. Okay, so the mutual recognition agreement is still under consideration. It is something that the pharmaceutical industry are very, very keen to secure. Yeah. It's important for them. It does not address the issues relating to the Northern Ireland Protocol. So we, in terms of the need for falsified medicines directive and a qualified person checks, uh, so uh, that's so it, it isn't it isn't it, it doesn't remove that that issue. Okay. Thank you. Okay, thank you. And maybe you could forward us the models rather than going into detail. The, the, you said there's information on the various models. Could that well, be there's not that much information. I'm happy to say what they are. Chair, there, it's, there's three options. It's very, there's, not a, there's not detailed modelling done at this stage. Okay. okay. I'll move on then. I'm going back on the phones there to Paula Bradshaw. Paula, are you there, please? Um, good morning, and um, thank you very much for the presentation. Um, I was just going to follow on from your question, um, Colm, about the um, healthcare professionals coming into Northern Ireland, and I appreciate that some of the immigration issues are, are very much the UK government um, responsibility, but I'm just wondering, because health has devolved, if there are any measures we can put in place to actually make working in Northern Ireland more attractive? Um, so that's my first question. And the second question relates to um, the cross-border healthcare directive. You've said there that the, um, in the report the Department of Health is considering the policy around the application of the principles post end of the transition period. I'm just wondering, since we're about six weeks off um, the end of the year, how soon will we see um, the outworkings of that um, those negotiations with the South? Thank you. Um, thank you, Paula. In terms of your first question around um, the uh, working in Northern Ireland, um, yes, you're quite correct that um, the regulations and the policy around uh, professional regulation is devolved to Northern Ireland, so there potentially are some routes that we can look at. Currently, uh, I have to say that hasn't been part of the, the programme at the moment. Um, I think it's, it's obviously something we will take away and consider further. Um, at the moment, the healthcare professions predominantly are nationally regulated. The only two that we have locally are the pharmaceutical PSNI and the um, NISC with the Social Northern Ireland Social Care Council for social workers. Um, so all of the other healthcare professionals are on a national basis, and it does mean that if we, you know, there are potential if we defer or or move away from the rest of the UK, it can make it more difficult even for the internal market. So there are considerations that would need to be looked at there, but we will take it away and and consider those. Um, sorry, just before you go on, sorry Patricia, sorry, thank you. Okay. It wasn't so much about the regulation of them or the terms in which they come to work within the United Kingdom, but it's really more around the terms and conditions or remuneration that those healthcare workers could possibly um, be offered because we know there are so many shortages and vacancies and pressures in our health service here. So it was more around that side of it. Um, I am going to have to take that away and come back to you on the workforce issues because obviously um, with the um, agenda for change, a lot of the contracts and the arrangements um, are 
are centrally organised, but yes, it is, it is something that we are aware of, that there's almost like an, an attractiveness to work in, in the different regions. Um, and we understand that, but I will come back to you on that point. Patricia, um, uh, Ms. Blanchard, you might be interested that we, did, we are targeting an interest in the pharmacy workforce. And, uh, and I'm sure that that will be mirrored across other healthcare professionals as part of the health and social care workforce strategy as that is implemented. And um, last week we launched a massive campaign to promote Northern Ireland as a place to study pharmacy and also to come and work. And with a deliberate attempt to draw back some of our um, pharmacists like me who studied in England to come back. So now managed to get that plug in for, for, for us. So, so it is something we recognise needs to be done. Attention needs to be given to promote Northern Ireland as a, as a good place to come and work and build your career. Uh, and there's a, there's a lot of other factors involved there. Thank you. Okay, thank you. And just, just as a, we follow up to that question, Apollos, is there, is there a growing kind of concern around the ability of the common travel area to deal with issues longer term in terms of workers north-south in particular? Is that likely to become an issue, Patricia? Um, in terms of, of the professional qualifications, obviously within the common travel area, it's in everyone's interest within the common travel area that arrangements do come to mutual benefit. Um, we are working with DHSC and with Ireland on the sort of mutual recognition of qualifications issue. Obviously, regulators also need to work very closely together, which they do already. Um, and we also have in place the the, sort of the, the north-south arrangements in healthcare cooperation, and it's very clear from both UK and Ireland that those are important and they are not EU-based and that they should continue under the Belfast Agreement. Um, so those issues need to continue and develop and um, grow from now um, in the absence of the EU considerations. Okay. Thank you. So I'm going to go back to the phone. I'm going to go first of all to our Deputy Chair Pam Cameron and I'll then go to Colin and then I'll come back into members in the room. So Pam, are you do you have a question there for us, please? Yes. Can you hear me, Chair? Yes, I can. Clear. Pam, thank you. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. And thank you, thank the panel for their attendance committee today. And apologies, um I've missed probably quite a bit of the presentation. Um I just want to ask the panel, um, in terms of um, what proportion of food or feed entering Northern Ireland from Great Britain is usually subject to controls um, related to the FSA or its labs in Northern Ireland, and um, by how much will this um, increase from the 1st of January 21? Chair, sure, we'll have to come back to Ms Cameron on that. We, we, um we know that um, you get direct briefing from Food Standards Agency, so I don't have that detail with me in the briefing today. We can come back on that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Okay. Okay, Pam. Yeah, I'll go on yes, there. Thank you. Yep, thank you. Okay, so I'll go then to Colin McGrath on the phone. Colin, could you uh, could you go ahead with your question there, please? Yeah, sorry. Thanks very much, Chair. Likewise, I might have missed a bit of the presentation on. on there so apologies if I'm repeating something. Um, I just wanted to pick up on the bit that was mentioned about the uh, North-South reciprocal health arrangements and then maybe more broader uh, if there was any update at all about the European Health Insurance Card going forward because I think people um, are getting a bit confused that, that things will happen North-South but 
the card won't be in Europe, but maybe people not realize that there's not going to be a card. And I was just wondering if the um, presenters would be able to give any clarity about that health, European health insurance card on a, what the general rules will be. Um, on the north-south reciprocal health care, um, obviously the UK and Ireland are in negotiations and it's at a fairly advanced stage um, to make sure that arrangements continue within the CTA. And yes, you're quite correct, that won't continue within Europe. Um, anyone that falls under the um, withdrawal agreement will still be able to maintain their rights. So any frontier workers, any Europeans that live here or any um, UK citizens that live in Europe will be able to maintain their current reciprocal healthcare rights and they will be able to have and use an EHIC. For everyone else, um, the EHIC is still part of the negotiations with Europe currently and the outworkings of that have not been confirmed yet. Um, so I can't give any updates. Uh, currently the advice is that anyone travelling over the end of the year um, will still be able to use their EHIC as part of the withdrawal agreement until the end of their visit. So if they're a student, um, for example, away, they will still be able to use their EHIC if they have been in Europe since before the end of December, even if they've come home for a holiday. Um, but uh, any new people, you won't be able to, have, to use the EHIC currently until the outcome of the negotiations. And obviously, everyone travelling really should have travel insurance as well. Okay, so to, just to clarify that then, so if you're living in Europe at the moment, or if you're a student that's studying, regardless of you live there or study, if you come home and then go back to Europe again, your European card is good. But if you're a new person that's going on holidays or travelling abroad after the 1st of January, at this stage, there is no provision in place unless something comes from the negotiations. Yes. That's correct. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Colin. Um, so I'm coming back then into the room. I'm going first to Earlier. Thank you. Um, thanks, Cathy and Patricia. Um, Cathy, in your remarks earlier, I just wanted to pick up on some of those. Um, so when you were talking about then that there could be possible disruption at the um, English Channel, which could arise, and then obviously um, the contingency plans that you've been, you've been working on um, are now ready and that, that those are starting to be used. Um, my question is, have, have you already identified um, shortages within medicines um, or have you made forecasts for shortages if that disruption does arise at the, the English Channel? Um, that's my, my first question. Um, and then, secondly, uh, just around the data sharing um, issues. So, there's obviously you had mentioned that there's discussions that are ongoing. I'm just conscious that this has been an issue with the, the COVID pandemic as well. That we're hearing, getting some of the same feedback that data sharing um, on on the island, north and south, is has been has been a problem. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could go into a wee bit more detail on what the problem in this context, what the problem actually is. Um, and if the, the delay in, in sorting this in sorting these data issues out, could this delay put patients um, at risk in, in any way? And then maybe just finally, Cathy had mentioned that these are still waiting on a number of critical decisions being made. And just in your opinion, um, in the here and now, what would be the most your most prominent concern or the most prominent decision that, that you are waiting to be made? Thank you. 
Thank you. Um, um, I can take um, a couple of those questions, if you like. I'll take question one and three, and then I'll hand over to Brendan to um, advise on the data question. That's okay. Um, so you asked, first of all, where have we got any shortages identified at the moment? And I chair a shortage response group here in Northern Ireland that, that I mentioned earlier. It's um, sorry, it's, it's our strategic cell, or these different words for things. But anyway, it's a group of people that meet now on a weekly basis that are responsible for representation from across all of our different supply areas. And I can report that today, this week, we have no supply issues across any of those. Now, that's not to say there aren't shortages that arise. There's always, a, there's always interruption in supply chains, but there's none as a result of EU at this moment in time. Um, and there's none that we are um, concerned about or that haven't to take additional action at the moment. Now, what would happen if we had to, and we do take action? So, um, nothing to do with EU, but you know, the supply chains are global, and there, things can happen at any point in a medicine supply chain. Um, there's some high-profile examples like EpiPen and things where you know major interventions are taken if needed. And what we've got is that uh, we've got a very, very um, um, extensive national surveillance now of the whole medicine supply chain, and that means that we can predict. You know, if we if we see potential issues coming up, and it allows more time to put in place plans, and how that goes out into our health and social care services, we we send out advice then from the department and supply disruption um, alerts, and that gives detailed advice about for prescribers if they have to make a decision to change, um, a, you know, a product from one product to another or something like that, but that at all times to maintain the treatment to the patient. So. Um, without risk. Could I just come back in just on that wee point, Cathy? Um, so it was just, it was actually an email that the, the chair um, of the committee had got um, this morning or early last night, and it was from a constituent who was saying that um, her specialist had told her that um, a prescription, the medication that she's prescribed, that there is, um, it would no longer be um, available as a result of Brexit. And maybe it's just a wee point around communication. I know you were saying that. Um, you know, there's the, the supply disruption alerts are sent out to, um, you know, the, the different um, health and social care agencies or, or, you know, whatever method they're sent out. But it's maybe just, um, you know, to prevent that from happening. So if it is down to a global supply chain, just that it's clear, you know, so there isn't confusion out there with the public. Well, I would be very interested in that example, if it can be shared with me, and I'll follow it up. Yeah. And also, um, I, I should also advise the committee that... If a decision is made formally to withdraw a drug from the U any part of the UK market, six months' notice has to be given by the company. So that means that, that they have to advise the, the DHSC, and that is that's and under our medicines legislation UK wide. So, um, we, so to prevent shocks, but it, that I will look into. But I'm not aware of that. Okay, thank you. Um, um, going now to Jerry. Oh, sorry, earlier. Go ahead. Go ahead. The, the data issue and the the, um, the yeah the, the critical decisions that user um, yeah. which would be the most prominent, and then just the north south data. <coughs> I mean, the most um, the most significant issue for me in terms of supplies now is clarity about the Northern Ireland ports and getting the flow in from Northern Ireland. We've done a huge amount of work um, in terms of never we're, we've never held more medical supplies at any point in history probably than we have now in the UK and in Northern Ireland. We do have, we do have additional stock here as well in our system. So um, so now I just want that flow to, to, to continue on, unimpeded and that's my 
current focus on supplies, but Patricia, have you? On the, the, on the workforce side, in the reciprocal health care, I mean, an agreement with Europe on continuation of Social Security would, would actually um, solve an, uh, and settle an awful lot of mines. Um, obviously, the CTA agreement is important to make sure that that um, arrangement is in place. Um, obviously, you know, we don't have decisions on those yet. They're not critical because people still will be able to get health care. It just it makes things a lot, a lot easier and simpler. Um, and it's a continuation of what we have now. Um, in terms of the recognition of professional qualifications, it would be, it would be wonderful, to be quite frank, if the UK could come to an agreement with Europe. Um, the mutterings that we have heard to date haven't been good. Um, but if we could, if the UK can't come to an arrangement, that obviously would solve an awful lot of issues around that area as well. Okay, so I, just before I go to Jerry, I want to check back with Paula. Um, Paula, was there an element of the second part of your question that you wanted to, um, that you didn't feel had been fully addressed? Can you just check that with you, Paula? Paula, can you hear me there? Okay, I'll come back to Paula after. Sorry, earlier I had asked, and it was going to be addressed by the other participant about data sharing. Oh, sorry, sorry. Okay, thank you for that. It was one of my questions. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so go ahead, Brenton. I'll bring you in there. Thank you, Chair. Um, thank you, Ms. Flynn, for the question. Um, there is actually no data sharing issues that have been reported through the department. And I sit uh, and work for the Chief Digital Information Officer and sit alongside the Data Protection Officer. But processes have been put in place in parallel with the preparation of paperwork. And the paperwork that is, um, the information governance paperwork can be quite detailed. So you may be hearing that the paperwork hasn't been completed or there's delays in completing that, but there's been no disruption to data flows that we're aware of. Okay. Uh, just, just, just as a follow-up to that, uh, there have been no disruptions. But are there? Are you anticipating? Is, are there? Are there things that you're anticipating may create difficulties in the future? And how are those being addressed, Brenton? No. As part of the original preparations for the full implementation of GDPR, the HSC organisations. Um, undertook studies on their data flows and reviewed all their MOUs and contracts. And this is carried over into the EU exit scenario. And we're very confident that we have the appropriate mitigations in place that will allow data to flow uh, regardless in a legal manner. And are there concerns around the divergence issue in relation to the data in the future? Should should uh, should Britain diverge from the EU? There there's an, an adequacy decision obviously in place there at the minute. But if there was future divergence, would that impact? And how can that be um, addressed? Uh, Chair, that's quite hypothetical at this moment. But it would be the it's actually the EU would have the issue about transferring data to the UK. The UK has always stated that they will transfer information uh, into the EU because they recognise that they are adequate. So it would be uh, our colleagues across the border who would be pushing to ensure that data could freely flow for cross-border services such as cancer, kidney dialysis, 
and even Northern Ireland Fire and Rescue, whether our shared services along border regions. So um, am I to take it from that that there's some there's some assurance in terms of say in, in terms of this island north south in that unilaterally the uh, Britain British government saying they would allow that to flow, but what about south north in in uh, Yeah, what about south um, north Britain? Well, if the, it's that's where the EU may have a problem, yeah. and there consequently the Republic of Ireland may have a problem. But it's hypothetical at the minute because the situation hasn't arisen and the UK government who lead on the adequacy decisions and discussions uh, keep assuring us that they're confident that that will be achieved. It's in everybody's interest to make sure it works. Yes, and, and, and what I'm acutely aware of is that actually rather than being the EU's problem, it could be our population's problem and, and the health services problem, um, and, and that we could be caught in the middle between these, these larger discussions and um, unforeseen, unforeseen consequences as things move on. Okay, I'm going to check back with, with Paula then in relation to her um, additional question, Paula, or not additional, but the question that she had asked. Paula, can you clarify that for us there, or repeat your question, please? Yes, thank, thank you, Chair. It was to ask about the cross-border healthcare directive. I had said in the in paragraph 28 of our pack that it had said that the Department of Health is considering the policy around the application of the principles post the end of the transition period, and I was saying that we're six weeks off the end of the year, and when will a decision or information around that be forthcoming? Thank you. Um, we're hoping to get the information um, quite shortly to the Minister. Um, we've had to look at some uh, international elements of the agreement because it is a um, with the World Trade Organization. It's, it's around the the provision of care, uh, sort of paying for care within a country, um, whether we did an agreement with Ireland or whether we did an agreement with Europe. So there's some considerations around it that are still um, having to bottom out. Um, just to, to tell you what the, the issues are. We do have provision, though, that anyone that applies uh, before the end of the year will still be able to um, continue and have their treatment. Um, it also does not stop a person um, travelling to have uh, private health care in another jurisdiction. What it does is that they won't be able to be reimbursed for their treatment. Um, but in terms of that, we should have um, some guidance and some advice shortly on that. Thank you. Yeah. It, it, is, it, is, it is concerning, but there's, I have myself diverted so many people yeah. who have only been able to get their treatment as a result of that scheme. We're 42 days away and we're hearing should and may and words like that. And that is really honestly, honestly causing anxiety out there in the community. This is, this is definitely having a, a massive impact. And again, it's one of these things where we knew this was going to happen, you know, so it, it is, it is uh, extremely concerning that we're still in these last minute kind of trying to catch up. And as I said earlier, trying to deal with the COVID pandemic at the same time. Okay, I'm going to go across there to Jerry. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks for the presentation. Um, just a quick comment and a question. Um, I suppose that the points-based system is um, in a situation where we need healthcare workers uh, from outside Ireland and the UK to have a points-based system. Seems pretty regressive, reactionary, and, and racist as well. So, just a, a comment on that. Um, uh, on sort of state aid rules in pharmacy, um, 
I know there's been a, a conversation maybe last month um, about sort of the British government's plans for changing and um, intervening in the economy around the state aid rules after um, exit. Has there been any discussion or research or thought around the benefits of intervening around pharmacy and big pharma? Um, I've seen Medicine Sans Frontiers calling for more transparency um, around sort of the vaccine and how it's um, how the trials are, are conducted around patent rules and, and issues like that. Um, I don't claim to be an expert in any of that, but um, I know there's, there's a concern, obviously, for people to get the vaccine as quickly as possible, as safely as possible, but um, without the, the possibility of, of sort of big pharma making huge uh, profits off that. So um, is there any work or any issues around possibilities around, around that? Would be helpful. Thanks. Mr. Carroll, I think it's more of a national question, more on a UK scale um, than specifically in Northern Ireland. What I can tell you is that um, there will be. Uh, we are, you know, our, our medicines and our medicines regulator, the MHRA. A large part of their work moving forward is going to be promoting life sciences and promoting engagement with pharmaceutical industry and promoting the, promoting the UK as a good place to do business. So there will be, and we, I mean, from my point of view, we'll be, we'll be encouraging that Northern Ireland is well represented in those. So it's more, I mean, that would be more our focus as opposed to state, the state aid questions probably are more, um, you know, UK government decisions than, than, than something we would influence, seek to influence here directly. Well, I appreciate that and appreciate there's obviously urgent questions that, that people have asked, but I think that obviously, you know, people want a vaccine quite readily as quick as possible, but if there's questions around you know, having a, a pharmaceutical um, sector that's not solely for profit, I think that would benefit people here as well as people uh, in the UK. Just finally, on, on the, the consent mechanism, Cathy, can you answer any questions about that? Explain a wee bit more. What do you Just mean the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the, the vote uh, that's going to come uh, four years after the, the transition period. Um, I don't know if it's your area, but um, I'm basically looking clarification to see if that is subject to the petition of concern, if we can get some clarity uh, on that, if, if it's known. I'd need to take that away. I don't think that is strictly our area, to be yeah. to be honest, but um, it could. I'm happy for that to be taken away. Okay, and, uh, and we can pass it on to whoever. It might not even be our department, I don't think, Mr. Carroll, to be fair. Okay, Cathy, I wanted to ask you a question on the on the vaccine, the potential vaccines that are being worked on, and indeed, I think it is. We all would agree that 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 would be something that is a, a source of hope that that there is um, a vaccine that will that will have an impact on the on the COVID nineteen situation. Um, it would appear that the the South are getting one point one percent of EU supplies of vaccine, which is twenty million doses, and I'm just wondering. Potentially, if we were if we were struggling to get supply of dose, and, and we have seen that in relation to to flu, and we know we're operating in a global market, is there potential for us to uh, tap into that procurement route? And also, secondary to that, is it the case, and and are you planning for uh, the rollout of the vaccine to be coordinated on an all island basis, in the sense that we are a single epidemiological unit, and therefore, I take it to provide population immunity, you would need to have it coordinated north and south. 
Chair, it isn't, uh, it isn't my policy area. I'm sorry, the, the detail of the vaccine rollout. Um, I can advise that we don't foresee any issues in relation to EU exit in terms of handling the vaccines and getting the vaccines into Northern Ireland. Um, uh, my understanding is that we're dealing with the Northern Ireland population, which is our responsibility, uh, but that other colleagues in the department would be best placed to provide the detail uh, on that, which, which we're happy to relay. But in terms of your own substantial experience as, as Chief Pharmaceutical Officer, do you agree that, it, that a vaccine programme needs to be um, coherent across the island to provide protection for our populations both sides? They, um, we, we don't usually cooperate. Well, we don't, we don't work on an all-island basis at this moment in time. I'm sure the committee are aware. We work in terms of the Northern, Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, but aligned in terms of principles and in terms of objectives for public health. And I, I, can, I can't see that being any different. Uh, this time around, um, um, Chair. Okay, and, and I appreciate that, but I would just suggest that that, that should be a, a piece of work that's ongoing to make sure we are aligned, given that given that it makes sense, obviously. In, in so I, I'm just flagging that, that I think it would be, hopefully, an urgent piece of work in the sense that hopefully the vaccine will be soon available and we will want to have that coordinated rollout in place. Sorry, just, just as you've mentioned vaccine, and I appreciate probably this may stray onto another portfolio, but in, in relation to EU exit, etc., um, do you envisage any problems of, say, for example, uh, vaccines secured by the UK government uh, to then be placed out on a devolved settlement perspective in terms of allocations? Do you, do you anticipate any difficulties uh, in that vaccine being rolled out from GB to Northern Ireland? Uh, in the in the event that a vaccine is coming, and in particular, if there's any difficulties surrounding the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, again, I mean, I, I'm just I am aware that this is not, um, you know, I'm not here to speak no, in detail no, about this. Of um, the um, the Northern, I mean, it's based on a population level share yeah. of what the UK government are entitled are 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 able to draw down from global supplies, mm -hmm. and Northern Ireland will receive their share. Um, of the vaccine, and and that will be allocated in, and and we don't we aren't we are, we don't anticipate any issues in relation to EU okay. um, that that could arise because the vaccine could come over, I know after the end of the transition period. Yeah, no, because I suppose that's probably after hearing your concerns that you've put forward in relation to other medicine supply, etc. Uh, with where we are, I suppose probably the year extension has removed some of those immediate pressures, but then. The concern is rightly out there. Well, then, if it if well, it's the, the vaccines will be coming directly into Northern Ireland. Yeah, directly to Northern Ireland. Okay, thanks. And is there, Cathy, again from your your chief pharmaceutical uh, angle, is is there um, consideration being given to how we would deploy a vaccine here? Because obviously there are different ways to use a vaccine. Um, are we are we provide are we coming are we developing a dedicated plan to how we use a vaccine in the context of the North that suits the particular unique situation we have with healthcare and that that work is going on right now, Chair, okay. and, uh, and you know, at, at the department and within the HSC. Um, so all all of that plan is, is is underway. Okay. Okay, members. I think that is. Sorry, I have, a, I have an indication there from Pat Sheehan on the phone. So, Pat, go ahead there with your question, please. Uh, thanks, Chair. I just wanted to ask Brendan a question about the data sharing. And I wonder if he is aware of data not being shared uh, by the South in relation to travellers coming in, particularly through Dublin Airport and coming north, because there was a problem with that uh, 
relatively short time ago. Thanks. Thank you, Mr. Sheehan. I believe that relates to the travel locator forms, and that isn't strictly healthcare data. I believe it relates to border security as such, but it is information that people would need. So I'm not, um, it's not within my policy area. Okay, so uh, despite the headline that there are no problems with data sharing, we have a situation here where uh, this particular data relates to a healthcare issue, but there's a problem ensuring it for other reasons. Um, maybe I was unclear. I probably should have stated there's no problems around direct healthcare information being exchanged. Direct care being for those treatments and life-threatening cases. Okay, there may be issues are, outside of our remit. There, but there are clearly problems in other areas of data sharing. Out with uh, the direct responsibilities of the Department of Health. Uh, there may be, but that's not uh, have enough to cover with what we're doing at the moment. Okay, thanks for that. Okay, thank you. Um, thank you, members, and thank you to our panel today um, for your presentation and your, your answers and your commitment to, to send on some further information there at, at a few parts of the, of the, of the session. Um, Thank you for attending, Cathy, and thank your, your entire team, and good luck in the time ahead. And, and, and I do honestly wish you all the best of luck, because this is... Uh, uh, just, just can I ask one, one final question, Cathy? What's your, key, what's your key concern at the minute in terms of the EU exit stuff? What issue is top priority for you? I think the main, the main thing for me out of all of the issues are, are the healthcare, is the healthcare supplies. Hmm. And uh, but there is... An enormous amount of work has gone on, and I think that uh, now it's just about, you know, providing assurance and, more, and drilling down into some particular areas that we still need to focus on. So we're we're really moving into a very active phase now, in terms of attention on this, and also, and you know, and I'm in contact with wholesalers, um, a pharmaceutical industry, and we have very good levels of relationship there. So, um, you know, they, I mean, I think it's important to provide that assurance to the public. That there's a huge amount of work has, has gone on, and, and uh, but that we're keeping a very active watch on this now um, in the coming weeks. Chair, would you seek additional time similar to the medicines issue if it was required, and do you think it would be it would be granted if the situation was serious enough to warrant it? I think that the the, the additional 12 months that we have secured. Our understanding is that cannot be extended on the medicines issues. That that, that is a definite red line, if you like, in terms of a new, a new deadline. Um, and on 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 other matters, I I think there are some critical decisions that we're waiting to, you know, as we've outlined during the briefing today. There are some critical decisions, and you know, and, and as, as I say, as a, as a result, it may be a good idea for us to provide a further brief. Chair, and I'll take your advice on that in a few weeks' time. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and we would be very happy to do that. Yeah, I think that might be actually something that. So, thank you for that. Thank you for staying on due to the technical issues. Thank you for staying on beyond the schedule time. Appreciate the answers and good luck. Yeah. Good luck for the future there. Thank you. Okay, members. Um, 
I have to say that was actually something I was thinking of in terms of the urgency and the speed with which all these things are happening. It may be the case that, that we do want to touch base with Cathy and the, the Chief Pharmaceutical Officer and her team again before. before uh, and, and I'm also conscious there of that, uh, that discussion around the, uh, the vaccine. Would it be the case that maybe, given it's a, we've been told that's a different team, should we consider looking for a briefing in, around the vaccines issue? Members are content with that, and content that we explore an additional Brexit briefing session. Sure. In relation to the Brexit briefing, and I think we'll all agree that the twelve-month grace period is potentially a game changer in relation to the pressures that they were facing, as was outlined by Cathy. Um, but it's what we do with that grace period, mm-hmm. and and I would suggest in the way in which we did see um, a joint letter going from both the deputy first Min- and the first minister and the deputy first minister in relation to food supplies. That potentially the committee consider writing to the executive, uh, the Department of Health, uh, to press them to use the grace period agreed to press the UK government to ramp up its case for mutual recognition between the EU and the UK in this area in the medium to long term, because that's going to be crucial regarding the supply issue. But I think that's something that the committee should give consideration to, uh, given the importance and the strategic importance of, of medicine supply to Northern Ireland uh, in a post-Brexit scenario. Members content with that? Any other views, Ailish or Clark? Sorry. Can I just check a mutual recognition of if you would spell out mutual so recognition of what? Precisely? It would be mutual recognition between the EU and the UK in the in the area of uh, the falsified medicines, so medicine supply, um, in the medium to long term. And I'm happy to provide that in probably an email to you, Clerk, and to the rest of the committee if if it was. I, I'm just not clear how that's different to what the 12 months that's in place now, Jonathan. So, so the, the, my understanding is the 12 months has bought time for industry to readjust, uh, to provide a, a potential scenario as to what the end game may look like. But in that 12 month period, there should be a case placed to the UK government to ask for mutual recognition of medical products, uh, which would enhance, which would from briefings that I have had with medicine suppliers would solve a lot of the issues because there would be very little difference in EU um, EU sourced uh, medical products compared to that of, of GB. Uh, could I suggest you send send a word through to get a look at because I'm just not clear about where, I, I, yeah. I can send that through in, to the other committees, but I think it would be important for the committee to, to do. Okay, members, um, any other issues then before we move off this this topic? No. Okay. Thank you. So we move on then to uh, we're going from to from item six to eleven, and we are looking to move now to our consideration of six statutory rules regarding coronavirus travel restrictions. Um, do we have all the officials on the line, sir? Yeah. Okay. So I refer members there to tab six to tab eleven of your pack. The examiner of statutory rules has reported on item 6, SR 2020-228, Amendment 16 to the Travel Restrictions Regulations, and advised that it was laid in breach of the 21-day rule, but the examiner is content that the Department has provided a satisfactory reason for that breach. The examiner will report tomorrow on Amendments 17, 18 and 19, and 20, and SR 2020-247, in relation to Denmark specifically but has advised that while all were laid in breach of the 21-day rule, again, the examiner has accepted the reason given for the breach in the context of the Department's urgent response to the pandemic. 
I can advise members and officials from the Department of Health are here to brief the committee on the regulations and to take questions. We will then consider each SR in turn. So I would now like to welcome by video link this morning to our committee meeting Ms Gillian Hines from the Health Protection Branch and also Mr Brian Dooley, Head of Health Improvement and Policy Branch. So I would just like to go ahead and invite the officials to brief, brief, brief us. I'm not sure if it's Gillian or Brian, but if you could indicate which of you are briefing, please. Good morning, Chair. Um, I will uh, do an introduction first of all, and then we can uh, follow up with questions. Thank you. Go ahead, Gillian. Uh, good morning, members, and thank you for the opportunity to brief the committee on the changes to the travel regulations. I will outline briefly the changes made by each of the sets of regulations in question. Amendment 16, which was made at 4am on the 25th of October, this added all of Greece back onto the list of exempted countries from which travellers are not required to self-isolate on the return to Northern Ireland, along with the Canary Islands, Denmark and the Maldives. The amendment also removed Liechtenstein from the exempt countries list. Amendment 17, which was made on the 31st of October and the 1st of November, and this amendment amended the passenger information in Schedule 1 to the principal regulations, which passengers arriving in Northern Ireland must provide. This included adding a requirement for seat numbers, coach numbers and vessel names. It amended the exemption for visiting forces and offshore workers in Schedule 2 to the principal regulations, which specifies individuals who are exempt from the requirement to provide information or to self-isolate. Cyprus and Lithuania were also removed from the exempt countries list. And finally, a range of sporting events that had now passed were removed from the sporting exemption list with a number of forthcoming elite events added, and these were checked with the Department for Communities. Amendment 18 came into force on the 6th of November and 7th of November, and if this was based on the risk assessment, it removed Denmark, Germany and Sweden from the exempt countries list. Denmark was removed when the regulations were made on Friday the 6th of November, Germany and Sweden were made at 4am on the 7th of November, which was in line with the rhythm that we've agreed with England, South, England Scotland and Wales um, regarding the announcement and coming into force time. Amendment 19, which came into force also at 4am on Saturday the 7th of November. This was brought in very quickly in order to respond to the risk associated with travel from Denmark, given the evidence of transfer of a COVID-19 variant from bank to humans. Given the risk and the emerging situation, this amendment removed all exemptions from the need to self-isolate for those who have arrived in Northern Ireland from Denmark or who have arrived in Northern Ireland from elsewhere and during the 14 days preceding their arrival in Northern Ireland have been or transited through Denmark. It also required those living at the same address to self-isolate also. Amendment 20 was made on Monday the 9th of November and this removed any exemption to provide information and complete the pasture locator form for those arriving from Denmark. And finally, the health protection coronavirus travel from Denmark regulations were made on Tuesday the 10th of November. These prohibit the arrival of flights and ships direct from Denmark unless they are commercially operated and have no passengers or are operated by the government. It also creates an offence for an operator to allow such a flight to land or a ship to moor unless it is necessary to secure the safety of the vessel or the health and safety of any person aboard it. Given the scope of amendments 1920 and the coronavirus travel from Denmark regulations, these will be kept under review. That is a short summary of the changes made in these regulations, and we are happy to address specific queries the committee may have. Thank you. 
Okay, thank you, Gillian. First one from me is in relation to uh, the self-isolation and the monitoring of the self and support indeed for those who need to self-isolate. Can you give us any update in relation to how that's being monitored, what kind of figures are coming back, have there been any requests or assessments made that people need dedicated support, and has that been provided? Um, I can kind of pass it on to Brian. Brian just wanted to address these questions. Thank you, Gillian. Yes, Brian, go ahead. Hello, Chair. Um, I can't give you an update in terms of numbers. I would have to get an update from Border Force who are monitoring this. So I'm not currently aware of requests for such assistance, but I, I can provide a written update. Okay. Um, okay, and you know that that does that does I, I have to say, and I want I want to reflect this very clearly to officials. It concerns me, given this is a public health emergency, that it's being treated as a border force. That people genuinely might arrive in here, and I have come across some cases where travellers have arrived here have tested positive and then have been asked to leave their hotel. Um, and, and some of those issues have been addressed on a case-by-case -case basis, but there's very little sense of an overarching system to support travellers in order to protect the population and to, in order to allow them to self-isolate in the way they would need to. Um, given we're so many months on now, from a health perspective, is there not a concern here that the support is inadequate? Um. In the short time that I've been in post chair, it hasn't been brought to my attention in the department that there have been those issues, but there may well have been in the past. So all I can say is that we'll liaise with colleagues in the PHA and the Border Force and we'll try and give you a proper update in relation to those concerns. Okay. Um, thank you. And then in relation to the Denmark and the issue the issue around the, the mink, and there's been a lot of changes made there uh, back and forward and a lot of uh, additional regulations brought in around that. But given, I say in a report yesterday, given that there are now, I think, strains of that, of that uh, mink variant detected throughout other European countries, what assessment is being made of how that issue it needs to be perhaps widened? And are there concerns that, that we have a very clear focus on Denmark, but we may be missing what's happening in, in those countries clearly surrounding Denmark? Okay, Chair. Well, I, I can assure you that the PHE and the JBC and the CMOs and the Chief Scientific Officers are aware of the European-wide situation. So we have had a specific focus on Denmark in the last couple of weeks, but we're also monitoring other countries in Europe. Um, for example, those countries where there would be mink farms. But we're also aware of the situation that you described where there was a variant that had come from Spain. And our understanding is that that had actually gone to other countries in Europe and will have come to the UK and Ireland. The particular um, mutant variant that you've um, referred to that came from Spain, um, our information to date shows that there's no evidence that this form of the virus spreads more easily or causes more severe disease than the other forms of the virus. And in the view of the relatively minor changes in its genetic structure, it is unlikely to have any significance in terms of vaccine development, diagnostic tests, or potential for immunity. So that other mutant uh, reference from Spain, we don't have concerns at this stage, but we are monitoring it and um, looking at the epidemiological evidence as it as we collect it. Okay, and that that there is there is some reassurance there in terms of as as far as that goes that it appears there are no. However, I think it does flag up the concern that any variation or any jump 
would indicate that we need a very robust system across the island of Ireland in terms of travel to respond to future mutations, which may create greater difficulty in terms of transmissibility. So again, I want to flag that, that I think and, and I, I think that it's essential that we have a health focus in relation to travel. I think it's it's a too much of a of an immigration focus in that sense or border force and that those border force officials, while I would I have no issue that they're trying to do their job to the best, they don't have maybe an understanding of the health imperatives. Um, one final one for me then before I go to members. There's been a lot of changes around sporting competitions and I'm just a wee bit baffled as to what impact that has on us, why there are so many variations around sports, what's creating that kind of churn within sports and the need for continual regulations. I think we've seen on occasions maybe Welsh cricket team or there's been various things that, that don't appear to have great significance here. So can you give us some more information on that? Yes, yes Chair, I can completely understand your, your viewpoint. Um, we tend to replicate the regulations as they occur in the other four, uh, amongst the four nations. And so a lot of the exemptions in relation to elite sporting events um, probably don't relate to Northern Ireland. And that's why we would tend to check with the EFC locally to see what is relevant and what isn't. But because these regulations come into effect so quickly, we often end up copying across the entire list. Yeah, but it, and but then, it, sorry, yeah, I'll just Brad. add, and, and, and as the events then complete, um, we then take them off. So that probably accounts for the, the amount of changes that you're seeing. But again, it, again, it, it raises that, that concern that's been ongoing, and I think there has been an understanding in the, in the initial months about how quickly everything had to be done. But I would expect and hope to see a growing uh, sophistication within our systems and within our responses to take account of our unique sporting environment, um, unique, unique challenges in that we have a, a land border. All of these types of issues are unique to here. And while I don't necessarily say we shouldn't adopt things that, that make sense, but are there other things that we are missing out as a result of over-reliance on central information coming from, coming from Britain? Hopefully not. We, we do liaise very closely with our colleagues across the water. Probably almost every second day we're in communication with them. But we also communicate internally within Northern Ireland with other departments and with Border Force and police and so forth. So we, we do our best to try and keep the communication channels open to try and um, make sure that the information that's provided to the public in Northern Ireland is relevant to them. And how, how, how are you communicating north-south in relation to those issues? Uh, well, similarly, there would be communication between the north and the south, um, probably not, obviously not as frequently as with UK colleagues. You see, I, I, honestly, I honestly would suggest that it should be every bit as frequent, if not more frequently, Brian, in, in the sense that there is so much interaction and uh, that, that again concerns me, that, that we're not seeing that development. I know the, the, the Memorandum of Understanding is in place and it was welcomed and has been welcomed by us, but we would have expected to see that being built upon over time so that we get better and better at, at responding. Um, and I, I, would, I, would like, I would like you to commit today that there will be, and I, I think we, we can we see uh, and can we be provided with the minutes of the meetings to see what type of issues are being discussed? in relation to that, north, south and east, west? Yes, Chair. 
Okay, thank you. I'm going to go now to members then. I'm going first of all on the phone. I'm going to go to our Deputy Chair, Pam Cameron. Pam, could you go ahead, please? Thank you, Chair, and thank you, panel, for your uh, time today. Um, I suppose, uh, just to kick off briefly on the Denmark issue, and uh, I'm seeing uh, a, a news article coming through from RTE reporting the potential cull of mink in the Republic. Um, obviously, we're where we don't have any mink farms here in Northern Ireland, but that is a real concern that, that, that you know, the potential impact on any vaccines coming forward in the near future. Um, so I'd be very concerned that, that, that there is sufficient engagement and um, that there's sufficient enforcement around um, the travel regulations and especially in terms of um, self-isolation. So I wanted to ask um, how effective the enforcement has been in respect of self-isolation requirements. And I wanted to ask if you have any information around how many fines have been issued and if the 4E approach used by the PSNI to cover um, forms of non-compliance and operation, um, you know, whether that's sufficient enough and it's, is, uh, is, there a, a, is there a tougher stance taken in, in terms of failure to actually self-isolate in particular? Okay, thank you for that question. Um, Gillian can correct me, but I think there, are, there have been 48 fixed penalty notices issued for breaches of self-isolation in the community in Northern Ireland. And that's been enforced by okay. the police. Okay. Okay. Okay, Pam. And, and yeah, I would, well, I suppose, are, are, are you confident that that's enough, given, you know, given the, especially in light of the Denmark scenario and um, that potential threat of an, that new stream Okay. Yes. No, I, I take that point. Um, in relation to Denmark, we've been very strict in terms of what we've done. No passengers um, are able to come to Northern Ireland or the UK from Denmark. So we've been stricter here than anywhere else in Europe. Um, and we have had um, cooperation from colleagues down south in relation to contacting people that have come from Denmark via Dublin to Northern Ireland. So they've been quite proactive in terms of helping us by contacting those passengers that have been through Denmark in the 14 days preceding when the exemption came into or when the um, regulation came into effect. Um, so we have been doing quite a lot around Denmark and we've got very good information, we think, from the JBC around the situation in Denmark. And as you pointed out, there is a cull of almost 17 million mink, I understand, and that's progressing. And the Deputy Chief Medical Officer in England has expressed um, confidence in the measures that have been taken in Denmark. So in relation to Denmark, we feel that they've been very competently um, reacting to the situation, which is quite serious. So I, I would have some confidence around the situation in relation to the mutant variant from, from Denmark. Okay, but in relation to the mink farms currently on the island of Ireland, uh, within the south, and I, I believe there may be a, a, a mink farm in Donegal. Um, you know, what's the scenario there? Or, or if the south is, is talking about culling or is actively uh, seeking culling of mink in uh, Republic of Ireland, does that mean that variant strain is present in the Republic of Ireland and have, um, do you have sufficient information to be confident that 
that there has been no um, exposure in Northern Ireland with uh, travel from Dublin to Donegal, passing through Northern Ireland. Right. Um, because this has all happened so quickly in the last couple of weeks, I would have to get back to you with an update from colleagues in Dublin and in, in other republic. I understand that there are three farms in the Republic of Ireland that do have, have mink farming. And I understand that there was a plan to actually phase that out within the next three years. So they were in the process, I think, of um, minimising that exposure. But in terms of what the current up-to-date situation is, I would have to get back to you with a, a proper written update. I don't know that the answer to that question at the minute. But we've certainly seen no evidence that there is any such mutant variant um, in Ireland. Okay, thank you. And Jonathan? And after Jonathan, I'll be going to Paula on the phone. Yeah, I'll just be brief. Is there any data on the, on the number of arriving passengers from Denmark uh, that if these rules have affected? Any specific numbers? Uh, we, we did receive some information, but I would rather give you a proper update um, than try and recall exactly what the numbers were. They were very small, uh, less than 20 for memory. Less than 20? I believe so, but I can... I can check that. Okay. Okay, thank you. So I'm going back then across to the video conferencing to Paula Bradshaw. Go ahead, Paula, please. Um, good morning, panel. Thank you very much for being here this morning. I would just like to ask um, what are the what advice will be coming forward in relation to students returning from GB for Christmas, whether you're engaging with the universities, UK government, or how is that being coordinated in terms of the advice? around um, potentially self isolating coming from areas where there are hot spots. Thank you. Um, be because we don't deal, we, well, we deal with um, the international travel regulations, that really wouldn't be my policy area, but I can certainly get you an update, a proper update in relation to that. Oh, no, I would really appreciate that quite quickly. I, I was um, trying to put it on the record with the Department of Health for six months before the two students arrived back in the Holy Lands and look at the unholy mess that, that, that are resulted from that. So I'd appreciate if we could get a, a swift response in relation to that. Thank you. Thank you. And then, uh, panel, uh, a number of the regulations come into force on, say, for example, I'll just look at... I'll just look at regulation there, 2020 forward slash 232, sorry, 243. And uh, it says that it came into force on the 7th of November, but it was made on the 7th of November. But, however, section 39.2 of the Interpretations Act 1954 implies it would only come into force the next day. Is that correct? And does that present a problem? Uh, Chair, is the one you're referring to um, the Amendment 19? Um, SR 2020 forward slash 243, Gillian. Um, I don't have the amendment number in front of me there. It's 19. But it's, 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 across, it's 19. Alan's, Alan's indicating it's 19. And it cuts across a number of them, but taking 19 as an example. Yeah, that's one that was made very urgently on the Friday night um, because of the Denmark issue. And it was made around about one o'clock on Saturday morning and I had it coming into force at 4am. So it was a very urgent uh, amendment. But what I'm asking is, given that it's urgent, does the fact that the 1954 Act 
means it only comes in the following day. Does that create a problem in these urgent situations? We can. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm happy. Yeah. Yeah, Brian. Oh, go sorry, ahead. Brian. Go on ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good point, Chair, and we need to get back to you on that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you, members. Any other questions in relation to those? Uh, Jerry. Just yes, sorry, sorry, I had to, I did it with Jerry. Jerry, you were in there. I'll come back to you, Alan. Just I'll, I'll, Alan, I'll come back to you. Sorry. Jerry first. Yep. Thanks, sir. Uh, just a question. I mean, obviously, we're talking about mink today, but are there any other animals that uh, this virus could sort of develop and spread in? And I'm just kind of thinking, what is the process? So, we get a warning for toxic in uh, in Europe for um, like a weasel or a ferret for toxic. Um, is there a modern process that um, officials from the department or from DERA? We check um, sort of farms or livestock. Um, how, how does that process actually work when there's a, a warning or, or there's a concern in Europe um, or elsewhere um, about the potential spread uh, from from animals? Um, I would have to discuss this with the chief scientific officer um, to get a proper response. I I wouldn't know for certain, so I'd rather not answer. But I can give you a written update. Yeah, I would appreciate that because I, I mean, obviously, I think mink are part of the same family as weasels and ferrets. We don't have yeah. many many mink. Uh, uh, it seems to be on the island, but there's other animals we do. So we're just kind of trying to get the process. If we get a warning uh, signal from uh, Europe about another animal, you know, how many staff are working to investigate to make sure that it hasn't spread and or developed in those animals. So that's in broad terms what I'm looking information on, if I can. Yes. Okay, thank you. And then Alan. Yeah, uh, just Chairman, just to get uh, a little bit of clarification, this uh, this uh, enactment bill from I think it was from 1954. Um, it's it suddenly came out of the woodwork, um, and I mean we have been in the assembly has been uh, passing uh, SRs and uh, SLs for the last couple of months, uh, and we've, nobody has queried us about it, it, it not coming into force until. The following day, um, just could, could I get clarification? D does in fact this enactment act of '54 uh, does it uh, trump uh, the dates that are in these uh, SRs that, that we have been passing? You know, or, or because they are emergency legislation, and because the date of operation is very specific in it, and because of the circumstances and the urgency with which they are being brought forward and applied. Uh, can we get? If we can't get it this morning. Can we get information back? Does this enactment act, in fact, trump uh, the, the dates that, that we would wish these things to come into operation? Yes, that's a very good question. Because of the public, uh, the public health risk at stake, there may be a, a means by which um, it, it is effectively trumped. But we'll get back to you on that. Thank you. Okay, and I just want to check very quickly if I see a, an indication there from Pat. Is that from the previous question, Pat, or do you have another question that you were looking to ask in relation to that quick question? You're still on mute there, Pat. I have, I have another question in relation to data sharing, just following up from my question to the previous contributors. Yep, go ahead, Pat. Okay, uh, I'm just wondering. I suppose this is a question for Brian. I'm wondering if they're aware of a problem with data sharing, particularly in relation to travellers coming through Dublin Airport uh, and heading on to the north. 
Uh, and if there is a problem, does that relate to uh, anything to do with the border force? Thanks. There is an issue, and it's being um, discussed, and there's been correspondence between the minister and the CPMO, so it is being addressed, and it's in relation to the um, the amount of information that we would like to be able to properly enforce the regulations. So what, what, what are those problems then, Brian? Um, it's really around um, the information that you need to enforce a regulation. For example, if you've got the address of somebody so that you know where they're self-isolating. So that in order to issue a fixed penalty notice, you, you would need an address, for yeah, example. Uh, I, I understand that. I'm wondering what is the reason for the blockage? Why why is the data not being shared? I'm afraid I don't know. Um, um, I think one of the reasons was in relation to um, doubt around legality in terms of whether they were able to share the information. And that's why there's been the correspondence because we've tried um, from different angles to try and resolve it. And we're sort of slowly getting there, but. We obviously want to do it as quickly as possible. Okay. And, and where, where is Border Force in the middle of all of this? What role are they playing? Well, that, well they are involved, obviously. Um, but I guess uh, there's only so much they can do in terms of the fact that passengers are entering into Dublin. So it's how we liaise with our colleagues down south. Oh, okay, well, I appreciate it. Get back to us with some more information around that. Thanks. Okay, thank you. And final question then on this section to Orlea. Yeah, sure. Thanks, sure. It's just a comment on um, Pat's question and, and the, the detail that Brian covered there. I think it might be worthwhile um, the, the committee writing off to um, the, the department or the minister once again on this issue. I know that he did refer to it in correspondence that he sent the members, um, I think it was two weeks ago. But we also, I did raise it, was it three weeks ago when we had the Minister and the Chief Medical Officer in front of the committee and the issues with the data sharing north and south. We've been talking about them for months now. So each time we've received an update, um, including from the Minister himself, I know that he was saying that we keep hearing that they're working towards having the issues resolved. Um, you know, that there might be legal issues that, you know, it was being raised at the North-South Ministerial Council meeting. Um, but I, I just think it would do no harm um, trying to get a, a further update in writing um, as to, you know, what, where the standstill is, is now and how and when it's going to be rectified. Yep. Okay, thank you. Um, so, uh, Members would uh, will li listen. First of all, what I will do is I'll thank the officials for attending. We can discuss that proposal. I think that's more of a proposal than a question, earlier, isn't it? Sorry, yes. Sorry. Okay. So I will thank both Gillian and Brian for attending our meeting, for doing your presentation and answering questions in so far as you could. And we will welcome receipt of the information that you've you've committed to passing on there, um, both of you. So thank you very much and good luck for the future. Thank you. Um, thank you. Yeah. So so. Are you proposing earlier that we write to the Minister requesting all correspondence he has sent in relation to this north-south issue and around the data? Is that, is that what your proposal is? Well, really, it was just because we already have had correspondence regarding it, but it just seems that the issue isn't moving any further on. And, you know, we're talking months now, not weeks. So, 
just a, you know, I know in the letter that the minister had sent us the other week, it wasn't specifically just around the data sharing issue. He had actually addressed a number of different issues. But I think on this, this particular subject that we need to do just maybe a focus letter on providing the committee with the details around where is the blockage coming from, what is the issue, and how and when is it going to be rectified? Okay, well, um, what I would suggest maybe is that we write, write to the Minister. I'm conscious that he is back with us on the 3rd of December, but in order to inform that, um, that we write to the Minister, ask him, uh, ask him to, to send all correspondence in full in relation to those discussions around travel restrictions and the contact tracing information. To, to capture the passenger health locator information. Are members content with that? Yeah. Members content, thank you. Um, okay, members, I'm going to now go back to going through each of those individually, as we normally do. I will uh, remind you of the, the uh, topic of each of them, and then we'll consider them in turn. So, going first to SR 2020 forward slash 228, I refer members to tab 6 of the pack. These regulations add the Canary Islands, Denmark, the Greek island of Mykonos and the Maldives to the list of countries and territories exempt from the 14-day self-isolation requirement. The regulations also remove Liechtenstein from that list. Those regulations came into force on the 25th of October. Have members any further issues they wish to raise in connection with that statutory rule? No, thank you. Uh, members, then, can I ask you to agree formally that the Committee for Health has considered SR 2020 forward slash 228, the Health Protection Coronavirus International Travel Amendment Number 16 Regulations 2020, and has no objection to the rule. Are members agreed? Agreed. Thank you, members. Uh, number seven, then, SR 2020 forward slash 234. I refer you, members, to tab seven of your pack. So I advise members that this SR amends the passenger information which passengers arriving into the North must provide, amends the entries relevant to visiting forces and offshore workers, which specifies individuals who are exempt from the requirements to provide information or self-isolate, removes Cyprus and Lithuania from the list of countries and territories exempt from the 14-day self-isolation requirements, amends the list of specified competitions relevant to the exemption from the requirement to self-isolate for elite sportspersons, provides exemptions from self-isolation requirements for passengers who have passed through exempted areas in the 14 days prior to arrival in the north, and provides that those who have passed through non-exempt areas must self-isolate for 14 days on arrival. Those regulations came into force into operation on the 1st of November. Have members any further issues they wish to raise? No, thank you. Um, so can I then ask members to agree formally that the Committee for Health has considered SR 2020 forward slash 234, the Health Protection Coronavirus uh, International Travel Amendment Number 17 Regulations, NA 2020, and has no objection to the rule. Are we agreed? Agreed. Thank you, members. Moving on to SR 2020 forward slash 241. I refer members to papers at tab 8 of the pack. These regulations remove Denmark, Germany and Sweden from the list of countries and territories exempt from the requirement to self-isolate for 14 days after arrival here in the north. The requirement to self-isolate in respect of travellers from Denmark came into operation when the regulations were made on the 6th of November and the next day in relation to travellers from Germany and Sweden. 
Have members any further issues they wish to raise in connection with that statutory rule? Thank you, members. So can I therefore ask members to agree formally that the Committee for Health has considered SR 2020-241, the Health Protection Coronavirus International Travel Amendment No. 18, Regulations 2020, and has no objection to the rule. Are we agreed? Agreed. Thank you, members. Moving on to SR 2020-243, I refer members to papers at tab 9 of the pack. These regulations remove exemptions from the requirement to self-isolate for people who have arrived in the north from Denmark or who have arrived uh, into here from elsewhere and during the 14 days preceding their arrival to the north have been or transited through Denmark. The regulations also require people residing at the same address as Denmark arrivals to self-isolate. Those regulations came into operation on the 7th of November. Have members any further issues they wish to raise? No, thank you. Um, so, therefore, can I ask members to agree that the Committee for Health has considered SR 2020-243, the Health Protection Coronavirus International Travel Amendment No. 19, Regulations 2020, and has no objection to the rule. Are we agreed? Agreed. Thank you, members. Item 10 is SR 2020-244. This SR provides that current exemptions in respect of providing information applying to, for example, diplomats and those employed in transport do not apply if that person has arrived into the north from Denmark or has within the previous 14 days departed from or transited through Denmark. The regulations came into operation on the 9th of November. Have members any further issues they wish to raise in connection with that statutory rule? No, thank you. So, therefore, can I ask members to agree formally that the Committee for Health has considered SR 2020-244, the Health Protection Coronavirus International Travel Amendment No. 20 Regulations NA 2020, and has no objection to the rule. Are we agreed? Thank you, members. We are agreed. And finally, then, in relation to this section, SR 2020-247, the Health Protection Coronavirus Travel from Denmark Regulations NA 2020. These regulations prohibit the arrival into the north of vessels and aircraft travelling directly from Denmark, certain vessels and aircraft which depart from Denmark. The regulations came into operation on the 10th of November. Have members any further issues to wish to raise in connection with this statutory rule? No, thank you. And therefore, can I ask members to agree formally that the Committee for Health has considered SR 2020-247, the Health Protection Coronavirus Travel from Denmark Regulations NA 2020, and has no objection to the rule. Are we agreed? Okay, okay members, we're going to move on to considering legislative consent motion. I'm just going to take a very quick, short break there. Could members try to be back for 12 o'clock, please, to we resume that session? Thank you. Chamber. Okay, members, thank you. So we are now resuming um, with item 12, which is the legislative consent motion, amendment to the medicines and medical devices bill. I refer members there to tab 12 of the pack and table papers. Can I remind members that the committee's consideration of this LCM was interrupted during last week's meeting due to technical difficulties? Um, members agreed that we would forward questions to the committee office, which were then sent to the department for a response. The Department's response 
is at tab 12.7 of your table papers there, members. Um, the responses have also been added to the draft report from the committee. I can advise members that the Committee for Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs have forwarded its comments to the LCM, and those are included at tab 12.1 of your pack. So, members, the next stage in relation to this LCM is for us to formally consider if we are content to support the Department in seeking the Assembly's endorsement of the Legislative Consent Motion. The motion has been tabled for debate in the Assembly on the 30th of November. So, before I put the question, are there any issues that members wish to raise in relation to this LCM? Jonathan? Thanks, Chair. I suppose because I, I didn't get to, to put on record, uh, outline my opinion on, on the bill at, at last week's committee meeting. But no objections in principle, particularly around the need to improve and enhance information sharing relating to medicines and medical devices, and also ensure that each devolved uh, region of the United Kingdom is fairly and consistently treated. However, concern is still present. I don't think there's anybody. Is there anybody online to ask questions to? No, we had the, the oh, all the oh, questions we submitted okay. had been answered by the. Yeah. I suppose probably I'm still unclear as to the extent that the Northern Ireland Protocol would create difficulty in such information sharing that already has been outlined probably in a lot of the COVID-19 regulations by other members. The problem with data sharing, but again, in relation to this particular bill, I'm unsure as to how the Northern Ireland Protocol would create difficulty in such information sharing. Should, for instance, the safety safety standards underpinning medical devices used in Northern Ireland begin to differ in some sense to GB or there is inevitable divergence in the future. So I suppose it's just to put that concern down. I see some of the department responses, but again, it still doesn't really answer some of the main thrust of my argument as to the concerns that I would have. And members can raise those concerns, I suppose, as part of the debate as well. So any other issues, members, that members wish to note or... No, okay, well then I'm going to go ahead and put the question to you members that the committee is content to support the department in seeking the Assembly's endorsement of the legislative consent motion. That this Assembly endorses the principle of the extensions to NI of the provisions within the Medicines and Medical Devices Bill dealing with human medicines, veterinary medicines and information systems as amended at committee stage in the House of Lords. So are members agreed? Yeah, members are agreed. So then, can I advise members that it's normal practice for committees to produce a short report on their consideration of the LCM? A draft report is included there at tab 12.6 of your table papers. And do members have any uh, issues that they wish to flag up in relation to that draft report? At 12.6? No. Okay. Okay. So uh, are members therefore content with the draft report? Yeah. And our members agreed that the Minister's correspondence, the Legislative Consent Memorandum and the correspondence from the Committee for Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs be added to the appendices of that report. Yeah, members are content with that. Okay. Okay. Okay, moving on, members then. Um, I just want to check with the clerk, do we think we can move to... The children? No. So we'll, we'll go to correspondence members and then we'll have our discussion on the children's regulations following that. So moving on now to correspondence. And can I refer members to uh, tab 13 of your pack and your table papers and also to the correspondence memo at tab 13.1. There's a few items that I would like to draw members' attention to. 
Item 13.2 is a reply from the Minister regarding urgent and emergency care at the Down Hospital. Do members have any comments in relation to that? Nothing indicated there. Would members be content to note that pending the scheduled briefing from the Department on the 10th of December on the review of urgent and emergency care? Agreed. Yep. Yes, members are agreed. Thank you, members. Item 13.3 then is a reply from the Minister uh, regarding access to cannabis-based medicines. Uh, do members have any comments in relation to that issue? Are members content to note the correspondence? Yep. Yep. Thank you, members. Moving on to item 13.9, uh, this is a commencement order in relation to the Mental Capacity Act. This postpones the commencement date for the offence of unlawful detention from the 2nd of December 2020 to the 31st of May 2021. Do members have any comments in relation to that? No? Okay. So uh, would members therefore be content to note that pending are further, future, further and future scrutiny of the implementation of that legislation. Yeah, thank you, members. Item 13.10 then is from an individual expressing concerns around the post-primary transfer tests. Do members have any comments in relation to that correspondence? Okay, I am advised that the Committee for Education is dealing with correspondence on this subject. Could I propose that we forward this piece of correspondence to that committee, noting the mental health issues raised? Great. Members content. Paula. Um, thank you, Chair. No, I just want to put on record my concern as well. I do think it's, it's an education issue, but it's also very much a public health issue, especially um, at the far side of Christmas, because we might find that because some um, parts of society will open up over Christmas and people will come together more, there's a high chance that there could be children going into the new year requiring um, to self-isolate who could potentially miss the transfer test itself. So I would appreciate if we could be kept updated with what the Department of Education has to say about this as well. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you, Paula. Uh, so moving on then to item 13.16, which is from the chest, heart and stroke, regarding funding provision for services provided by the voluntary and community sector. Do members have any comments in relation to that? And would members be content that we potentially seek a future, a further update on funding for the sector? Would we look for an update on that issue, given the concerns that that sector have expressed in, in a number of forums? Yeah, thank you, members. Item 13.17, then, is an invitation from the Law Centre to the Chair and one other committee member to a roundtable event to discuss changes to the special benefit rules for people with a terminal illness. I am happy to participate um, and looking forward to participating in, but can I ask any, any other interested members to contact the clerk to express an interest? Okay, thank you. We have data that, Chair. Do you know what date that is, do we? Um, emails, is it? I don't have it in front of me here, Jerry. It will be, I think, in the memo, which is at 13.17. Uh, okay, thanks. Okay. Yep. Okay, members. Um, so moving on to 13.21, which is an update from the Department of Health on the issues affecting dentistry during the pandemic. So uh, any comments then, members? Obviously, we've been, we've been quite centrally involved in, in relation to this issue. Do any comment from members there in relation to that? Um, we do have a, a kind of pencilled-in briefing from the CDO, um, uh, the Chief Dental Officer, on the 3rd of December. 
In light of the other additional issues we have raised today with Brexit and with vaccines and that, would members be content, or are there any counter-proposals? Would members be content maybe we reschedule that again for the other side of Christmas? And at which time I think we'll be able to have a, a sort of a better understanding of how dentistry issues are faring out. Would members be content with that proposal? To defer that briefing, thank you. Okay. Okay, item 13.22 is from the Department of Health advising the Committee of uh, UKSA the Control of Mercury Amendment EU Exit Regulations 2020 to ensure that current EU regulations will be operable as, re as retained EU law after the end of the transition period and to reflect the Ireland NA protocol. The statutory instrument falls to the Committee for Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs for scrutiny, but the Department of Health has an interest as the regulations include provisions around the use of mercury in dental amalgam. The Department advises that it is not concerned about any immediate implications. Have members any comments in relation to that? No. Thank you. Then are members therefore content to note the SA? Yes, members are content. So are members content? Uh, are members content and, uh, that uh, with with the other actions as suggested in the correspondence memo of thirteen point one of your pack? And there just was one issue there that I wanted. Thirteen point six is relating to figures on the number of enforcement measures. Um, I think it would be it would be important that that's shared regularly with us. Would would members be content that we? Uh, Ask the department to ensure that these figures are shared regularly with the health committee on an ongoing monthly basis, just so we can keep an eye on that and, and watch out for. Um, and also, I, I would be interested as to who issued the penalty notices and the community resolution notices. Um, I'm not sure what the difference are in those and how they're how they're being uh, implemented. But I wonder could we ask for some clarity in relation to the, the two types of notice, one being the penalty notice and the other community resolution. Are members content with that? Yeah, thank you. Okay, um, so members otherwise content to note the actions as suggested in the correspondence memo at 13.1? Yeah, members are content, thank you. Uh, we then, members, are hopefully moving on to our consideration of the children's SRs. Uh, so it's SR 2020 forward slash 235, the children's social care coronavirus. Temporary Modification of Children's Social Care Amendment Regulations 2020. And, uh, members will remember that earlier in the year the Department of Health made regulations to make temporary modifications to allow health and social care trusts and independent providers of children's social care services flex some flexibility in the provision of essential services to look after children, children in need and care leavers during the pandemic. It was anticipated at that time that the requirement for the modifications would be temporary and that they would expire on the 7th of November 2020. However, the Department now advises that it intends to extend the operational period of the regulations for a further six months until the 7th of May 2021. The Committee have sought the views of stakeholders on the proposed extension of the temporary modifications and we have received submissions from Barnardo's, Nicky, the Human Rights Commission, Oswa, VoIPIC, the Fostering Network, NI Guardian Adlitum Agency, the Children's Law Centre and the NSPCC. The Clerk's Memo is at tab 14.1 and submissions can be found at tab 14 of the pack 
and table papers. On behalf of the committee, I would like to thank the stakeholders for their submissions, which will assist us in our consideration of the SR before us, and indeed to also thank the clerk and her staff for that substantial outreach to those very, very important sectors. The examiner of statutory rules will report tomorrow on this SR and the principal SR, which was 2020 forward slash 78, but has advised that while the regulations were laid in breach of the 21-day rule, she is content that the Department has provided a satisfactory explanation for that breach in the context of the urgent response to the pandemic. I can advise members that officials are here today to brief the committee on the amending regulations that will extend the operation of the temporary modifications. So I'd like to now welcome by video link Ms Eilish, Eilish McDaniel, Director of Childcare and Family Policy at the Department of Health, uh, and Ms Deirdre Mahan, who is Director of Women, Children and Executive Director of Social Work in Western Health and Social Care Trust. So you're very welcome, Eilish and Deirdre, and I would now like you to go ahead and brief the committee, please, and we are very keen to uh, receive your briefing this morning. Thank you. Thank you, um, Chair, and good afternoon um, to, to, to you and to members. Um, just first of all, thanks for the opportunity to brief the committee um, on the Corona, Children's Social Care Coronavirus Temporary Modification of Children's Social Care Amendment um, Regulations. The regulations were made on the 30th of October and came into operation on the 5th of November. Members have been provided um, with the SL1 notification outlining their legislative effect. And in short, the statutory rule amends the expiry date of the principal regulation from the 7th of November 2020 to the 7th of May 2021. If content, I'll very briefly um, summarise the purpose of the principal regulations and the basis on which the department considered it necessary to amend the expiry date. Um, Jerry will then describe to the committee some of the challenges currently faced by health and social care trusts um, drawn from examples in our own trust. The principal regulations provided trusts and other independent providers with the flexibility were needed to maintain essential family and children's services in the face of service challenges caused by um, the COVID-19 pandemic. Those challenges were mainly due to a combination of staff absence, increased service demand and requirements in accordance with public health advice. In accordance with the department's guidance supporting the regulations, and they're to be used only where absolutely necessary necessary for the shortest possible period, underpinned by continuous risk assessment and the exercise of professional judgment. And the department is satisfied that to date this guidance has been, has been adhered to. The department also made a commitment to committee members and key stakeholders that the use of the regulations would be closely monitored and this data used to inform whether they should remain in place. Monitoring has been underway since June. And the data for the first four months um, showed a steady decline in reliance on the modified regulations and a gradual return to business as usual. Many of the modifications um, were not being used at all, and in the majority of areas, um, there was decrease in reliance on them by trusts and independent providers. Rebuild plans for children's services indicated that children's services would return fully to business as usual by the end of September. Our intention from the outset had been to revoke the regulations at the earliest possible stage. On the 2nd of September, when we shared the July monitoring report with the committee, we considered that it would be possible to revoke um, by mid-September if the situation continued to um, uh, improve. However, over the following three weeks in September, the picture changed rapidly. 
localised restrictions were imposed for parts of Northern Ireland from the 10th of September, with Northern Ireland wide restrictions introduced on the 22nd of September as infection rates rose steeply. Further restrictions were then imposed in the Derry City and Strabane Councillery on the 5th of October. And in light of these changes, the department concluded that it would be no longer um, appropriate to revoke the regulations early. But at that stage, the intention was still to allow the, them to expire on the 7th of November. By mid-October, all trusts had moved away from rebuild um, planning, and I, I, I mean within children's services, and back into surge um, planning. The department had begun to receive information from trust directors that staff absences were increasing sharply due to a positive COVID-19 test or, or a requirement to self-isolate. So for example, in the Western um, Trust, by the 9th of October, 70% of its northern sector gateway team in Derry had tested positive and were unable to attend work. An additional factor is the predominantly female workforce in children's services meaning that above average rates of maternity leave compared, um, there are above average rates of maternity leave compared to other sectors. And the advice to um, pregnant women working on the front line is that they must work from home after 28 um, weeks. And this has had a significant impact on children's services compounded by the fact that there are limitations on the work that social, social workers can do from home. As expected, the October monitoring report, um, which I shared with the committee earlier this week, shows a renewed increase um, in reliance on the flexibility provided by the regulations in most areas. Uh, and the current challenges, um, we expect to see further evidence of this reliance in the monitoring data for November. Among uh, the children's services most severely affected by the second wave of the pandemic has been residential care, where staff have been unable to adjust their working practices other than using PPE in response to the pandemic. For example, they can't work from home if required to self-isolate. From the 12th of October, the department started to receive early alerts telling us about COVID-19 outbreaks in our children's homes. And in fact, as recently as Monday, um, the 9th of November, I was advised of a COVID-19 outbreak at the, the uh, Regional Secure Care Centre at Lakewood and Bangor, leaving it in a critical position where 42 staff are unavailable and um, for work. 21 have tested positive and 21 um, have had to self-isolate um, due to close contact. The most recent information I received was that a further five um, staff were awaiting test results and two were shielding. A number of children and young people have also tested um, positive. New admissions are prevented in the foreseeable future. And in the meantime, trusts are having to manage locally those young people who might otherwise be admitted to secure care. Higher infection during the second wave has seriously obstructed redeployment options um, that were available during the first wave. Across children's services, teams and trusts at the 31st of October, there were 242 staff absent and unavailable and for work for COVID-19 related reasons. For example, staff testing positive or becoming, and becoming symptomatic or having to um, self-isolate. In the Western Trust, um, for example, 112 staff were unavailable for work and um, 53 in the Southern Trust and 48 in the Southeastern Trust and that was before the Lakewood um, outbreak um, depleted staffing resources even further. At the same time as trusts were responding to the staffing challenges, I, I've described um, demand for children's services is, extre is extremely high. For example, in the past week, there have been um, 91 child protection referrals, and that's a 133% increase in weekly referrals since the first week of April, when weekly data correction began. And since April, there have been, uh, there's also been a 34% increase in the number of referrals um, to children's social services, and there are more 
109 more children um, in care. Um, there are growing concerns about some foster carers and their ability to cope with restrictions and, and young people having to be off school um, or sent home to self-isolate. There have been a number of foster and, and adoption placement breakdowns, in addition the demand for residential care for children under um, 12 years um, of age has increased, requiring statements of purpose to be adjusted. Some pressures are not directly COVID related. So for example, current provision for um, the accommodation and care of separated and unaccompanied asylum seeking children is now at capacity. And there's um, the additional pressure of um, unaccompanied children having to self-isolate for 14 days when they arrive in Northern Ireland. In light of the pressures I've described, the department received representation from trust directors of children's services that they needed the regulations to stay in place to allow them to maintain essential children's services. At the earliest stage of the second wave, the general view of directors was that it felt very different from the first wave. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Elish. Could you just slow it? It's a little bit hard to follow some of the detail at times. The lines are slightly patchy, but could you just slow it down a little bit, just please? Just hard to pick up some of the detail. If you just... Um, yeah, okay, thank, thank you. Sorry, go ahead. I'm I will slow. At the earliest stage of the second wave, the general view of directors was that it felt very different from the. Um, they've also described unpredictability, with some services becoming unstable very quickly, as demonstrated by the events in Secure Care Centre, in other children's homes and gateway services in the Western Trust. And we consider that to revoke the regulations at this stage in the pandemic would be to risk placing trusts and other providers in an invidious position where, for example, a COVID-19 outbreak might leave a social work team with insufficient staff to continue services in accordance with normal regu regulatory requirements or timeframes. Yet not to do so would mean acting outside the law. This would not be an interest of either our trust to the children and young people um, in their care. While the modifications are enforced, the department retains the ability to apply and keep under review guidance to trusts on best practice, where resources and or restrictions don't allow them to comply with. Elish, sorry, we've just lost you there. And yeah. you just, you just, Elish, we lost you there for a second. You're saying uh, resources to comply and, and we lost you at that point. Apologies um, for it. Um, I, I've just gone on to say, and I think the committee is aware of that. So the Children's Commissioner, for example, has been advised, uh, along with a number of other um, organisations. I met with the Children's Commissioner on the 11th of November, and she recognised the pressures on children's services are significantly greater than during the first wave, and appreciated that there's a need for the modifications to remain in operation. She emphasised the importance of monitoring for the purpose of, uh, of ensuring that the regulations are only being used when absolutely essential. And in light of the Commissioner's concerns, the Department will publish um, its monitoring report every two months and not quarterly, as previously um, indicated. The Commissioner has rightly asked what supports are being put in place for staff, given the pressures that they're currently under. And Deirdre will provide some information on, on what is in place within trusts um, to support and staff. The Commissioner has particular concerns about staff working in children's homes, given both the intensity and, and the importance of the role that they undertake. 
We've invested an additional 3.3 million to support contingency arrangements in children's homes and supportive accommodation by providing temporary staff to help address staffing deficits arising from COVID-19 related absences. Recruitment of additional social workers and social care staff is progressing via the workforce appeal with 128 social workers or social care staff at pre-appointment or appointment stage and uh, further 685 at an earlier stage in the process. In addition, the department has worked with trusted employers to expedite the recruitment of recent social work graduates with the result that 194 graduates have been employed since April and that's a significant increase on previous years. The department has increased um, capacity by um, commissioning an additional 15 social workers via the Open University, many of whom are currently working in social care. Workers are also being recruited to assist in children's services, um, including children's homes, providing extra support and broadening the skills mix. So, for example, in the Southeastern Trust, um, uh, 26 youth workers are currently being um, recruited. Um, I've had cited the response from the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, and the Commission acknowledges that the regulations have not been excessively relied on to date, and that their usage has been regularly monitored. It recognises the gravity of the situation and the renewed pressure on trust during um, the second wave. I fully accept the points it raises that the use in any flexibility must be proportionate, no more than is required to deal with the emergency, and only to apply for as long as is necessary to address the pandemic. As before, we um, give a commitment to the committee that the regulations will be revoked at the earliest opportunity, and hopefully that will be well in advance of May um, 2021. And at this point, I would just like to ask Deirdre um, to describe in, in some more detail um, for the committee um, some of the challenges that trusts are currently um, facing in practice. Okay, and just before I go to Deirdre there, Eilish, um, could you, we, we lost some small parts of that through, through the way. Could you provide us with a copy of your speaking note, maybe, which would fill in the information that you've conveyed there to members for us? Absolutely, well, I'm sure I'll do that after the meeting. Yeah. And, and could I also remind all participants on video conferencing to keep your phone on mute? Uh, because if, if there's other phones active, it can cut in in that way that, that happened with Eilish there. So um, please put your phone on mute unless you're speaking, and I'll go across then to Deirdre. Thank you, Deirdre. Okay, thanks. Chair and good afternoon everyone. Um, so I'll start just with give a bit of a background um, to the issues that the Children's Commissioner raised in relation to psychological support for staff, um, particularly staff in residential care. So um, every, um, every trusted psychological helpline for staff, which is actually used regularly, it's manned by trust psychologists and there's a framework in relation to that. Um, also, staff and children's home have direct access to um, psychologists managing with them during their team meetings. There, we have offered quite a lot of practical support um, for staff in residential care, um, testing hubs, accommodation, sharing facilities. In the West, we've actually bought um, three sets of clothing for staff to wear to clothes um, to work. They didn't want to wear scrubs for obvious reasons. It's um, a children's home is a home and um, the children didn't really want to see staff in, in scrubs so we, we bought uh, tracksuits and stuff like that. Um, there are drop-in clinics for staff. Um, there's monthly reflective forums 
chaired by psychologists and taking place in all the children's homes. Um, in the Western Coast, we have a framework for well-being and psych psychological support. Um, and on, on quite a few occasions, the psych psychologists have gone into the children's homes and had reflective sessions with the staff talking about their anxieties, any issues they have. And I have to say the staff in the residential homes have been fantastic. They haven't really um, demonstrated any any particular issues um, as this pandemic has gone. Probably in the very early stages, in the first month, there was a lot of anxiety. But as time goes on, and a lot of the... the we now have the outbreak in Lakewood, but a lot of the young people have... You know, joined in 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 the in the behaviours around PPE. They're they're helping cleaning with their masks on. They know when to use them, when not to use them. The staff know when to use them, and the young people have become part of the solution um, in our children's homes. So it 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 hasn't been a major issue. But having said that, the psychological support is there for staff when and if they need them. So I can ask them ask answer more questions about that, that chair if you if you want um, the other thing maybe then just to say to put the, um, the modifications in some degree of context as as Ailey said um, staff have only used these um, regulations when enough they need them and that's really really important I mean no one wants to dilute the service that we have unless it's absolutely necessary and that's borne out I think as Alicia says that we used them less and less during the last surge and as as um, we got somewhat back to some degree of normal over the summer we were using them practically not at all and then unfortunately so September, particularly with ourselves and Darian Straban, we needed to use them more and more. And then the staff then was fearful that we were the regulations was going to be stood down, and that they felt that actually this was the time they needed them even more. And it was causing quite a lot of stress to staff chair because um, the regulations have timeframes um, in them, and for a staff for a member of staff to have a review or do a statutory visit within a four week period, when we were down on staff and they were working from home and they were having to slow down the work that they had to do because they were sometimes going out to someone's house, coming back in, having to get showered and changed and going out to somebody else's house. So they, they weren't going from house to house to house as they previously had done. So it slowed everything down for them. And to have to do visits within four weeks, um, which is what the original regulations are, um, was causing them undue stress and sometimes having to do visits at nine and ten at night just to get it within the time frame. So having the modifications of the regulations allows them a degree of flexibility flexibility if they need it. And that's really important to say if they need them. Um, because otherwise they'd be breaking the law and that's just it causes them so much stress. Um, the other things that's that's very challenging in relation to um, trying to live within the regulations is that you know you have foster carers for instance quite a number of them were shielding a lot of our foster carers are are, um, are in the middle aged and they were shielding or older and didn't really want children um, or social workers coming in and out of the house all the time so children that were going to visit family for instance 
their own birth family and then all that contact and then coming back into their home so social workers had to find creative ways because obviously families have a right to see their children and the children have a right to see their families but a lot of that was being done virtual some of them well they were going to contact room but the room had to be um, cleaned down between visits which slows everything down as well so there's a whole lot of variety of different things that happen very differently and as Elish also said you know in in the gateway team in the Western Trust and for those members who aren't aware the gateway is the front door of social services it takes all the referrals and at one point I had 18 staff down um, significant a number of them that were uh, positive the others were self-isolating well the gateway service can't go unstaffed because that's the front door that's where all the referrals have to come in so we had to redeploy staff from all our service areas in there to make sure that there was always staff there but that meant that the other service areas weren't doing what it was that they were supposed to do so we're all the time juggling moving around trying to provide the absolute best service for children and families trying not to use the regulations the modified regulations if we don't have to but it's a great safety net there for staff if we need to use them i have a whole lot of other examples chair but i'm conscious of your time so i think that's enough for now and then we can i can answer questions if that's helpful to people okay thank you deirdre and elish both for the presentations <clears throat> couple from myself first and then i'll go to members um You'd mentioned there, Deirdre, and it is very, very welcome and important in relation to the psychological support for staff. Um, but I'm just wondering what uh, additional psychological support for families and for, in particular, the very, very vulnerable cohort of children that we're speaking about here, um, what additional psychological support has been provided to those uh, people? Yeah, we, we've been, we have a helpline for families. We've been doing a lot of support um, for families. I mean, a lot of the families haven't been as anxious in relation to the contact issue. The issue for families, Chair, as you could imagine, is um, poverty. It's the impact of um, unemployment. We have been offering a lot of support to families in that particular way, but also psychologically as well. Um, if families are anxious or worried, you know, there were families, for instance, not so much interestingly in this part of the surge, but in the earlier surge, who didn't want any social workers in their house at all. Um, so we were doing a lot of conversations through um, telephone calls, um, digital meetings, Sort of the challenges for a lot of uh, families in, in poverty is that they didn't have access to um, the digital, um, they didn't have laptops, they didn't have um, access to a lot of the technology. So a, a lot of the families obviously have phones, but they didn't have access to the technology. So the social workers have been working very hard with families trying to make sure that um, we can loan laptops, we can loan um, uh, iPads and also helping them getting the technology on their phones if they need that to take part in meetings. But social workers are there every day supporting families the, the best they can. Um, but you know, with everyone, it, it's a very challenging times. 
for all families. For children, we've done a lot of work. Our Looked After Psychological Support has been doing that for families. We also have child psychotherapies who've been working with children direct, um, making sure that they're, you know, because for children, it, it wasn't, it's not so much COVID for children, it's a lockdown for children. So we've, we have really good contracts with some of our community voluntary agencies. They have been working very hard, taking children out, working with children, particularly extern, for instance, um, taking children um, out of the home, making sure that they're being supported, that they're able to do some fun things, trying to do that within social distancing. It's not easy. And, and again, this time with the, um, this surge, at least children have school, which the first time was actually very challenging not having that. Having it this time makes a huge difference to the support that's been offered to children. Okay, thank you, Deirdre. And actually, I should have there, and, and I will declare my own interest in relation to my previous work as a social worker. Um, so I, I do have that sort of uh, background and, and understand. But I wanted to clarify before my question, Eilish, did you say, or what figure did you give for the increase in referrals over the past two, over the past while in relation to referrals? Okay, so um, there's been a 143% increase in the number of child protection referrals since um, earlier pandemic. 133, did you say, Alicia? 133% increase. Um, so, in terms of numbers, um, the weekly average on the 6th of April, which was when we started to collect um, data weekly, um, the average was 39 referrals um, per week and um, by the 16th of November um, it had 91. We lost you there that's, after. That's, that's the weekly um, average. Deirdre, um, you're, you're, Alice, your phone line's very intermittent there. We lost you just after. Um, I'm not sure if there's anything you can do in relation to, you don't have a headset or anything to get that we could try? Maybe she turned off. I actually don't have a headset and this is the first time it's actually does Maybe, maybe try, maybe try and turn it off your video. Maybe try. Maybe try and turn it off your video. 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 Maybe um, and um, 90 more children um, on the Child Protection Register, and that's compared to um, December of last year, 2019. But, but I can give you all of, this, all of these figures um, in writing, and Chair, along with the um, opening statement. Yeah, if you, if you actually send us maybe your speaking note there, that, that will have, and those figures, that'll be appreciated. Would you try there turning off your video, maybe, Elish? It might help us. You, you, we might have better audio if you suspend or switch off. So, um, are you still hearing me there now, Elish, just to check? I can still hear you, yes, absolutely. Yeah, and it might be slightly better. We'll see as we go. So, listen, I asked for those figures just to give the, to set some of the context around this. And I also am aware that from evidence at a, at a committee, I think yesterday, I'm not sure if it was here or, or potentially in Westminster, that we have here 2,400 approximately children on the at-risk register and 24,000 children who are known to social services. So that's to give some context of the, the vulnerability and the extent of people, young people that we are talking about here. I was also uh, 
struck Deirdre during your presentation when you said that as a result of COVID, some families didn't want social workers coming to the house. Unfortunately, we also know that some of these families don't want social workers coming to the houses for other reasons. So yeah. what, what steps have been taken to ensure that where you're doing an assessment with a young person over a laptop, for example, where that's available and that's a separate problem, but where you're doing that assessment, how are you assuring yourself that there's not someone out of sight of that laptop listening to the questions, listening to the answers, making eye contact with that vulnerable young person? How is that being managed? Yeah, um, Chair, that's a, a really good point. Um, it, it's really important to point out that initial assessments of families that we don't already know are not done virtually. We are going out to the house to do those. All child protection visits are being done. Staff are wearing their PPE and they're going out to the house. Also, all children in need referrals, of which there is considerable worries, are also all being done. So they're not being done virtual and you're right you know we were very very mindful that if someone doesn't want you out to the house um what's that about um so all those have been risk assessed um staff are experienced to know you know why someone doesn't want you out to the house etc etc people are still going out to the house if necessary um some visits have actually taken place in the gardens They've, they've taken the child out, they've talked to the child on their own, as opposed to just through a laptop. The sort of ones that are done more through laptops, Chair, would be children in foster care who've been there for some time, and they're very settled, but that they're entitled to a statutory visit every, every month. A social worker has to visit them every month. So those are the type of ones after a risk assessment that would be done virtually. But what we have tried to do is um, mix them up a bit. So one month might be virtual and the following month will be um, a face-to-face -face contact. So it's really making them up to make sure that there's no child um, who's um, not been seen regularly face-to-face -face by a social worker, even if that's, as I say, in the garden or outside the home. So we're very, very clued into those those issues. Jared, you're absolutely right to, to put that out. Thank you. And then um, going on to the broader issue around the whole suite of emergency legislation, and I do, I do uh, just want to reflect that this committee is particularly concerned about this cohort of people and the impact that emergency or, uh, or, or legislation of a nature in particular that's, that's impacting on the frequency or the quality of, the, of those so important visits. Um, and I am also conscious from a lot of the responses that we've got, and again to thank all those, but say the Human Rights Commission and I think the Younger Persons Commissioner have flagged up uh, the issue of reliance on emergency legislation. And I think it's very, very important that we guard against the sort of creeping normalisation. We should be struggling and fighting to get back to, to the maximum protections uh, for, for any vulnerable group of people. But given that, uh, given that the monitoring reports show different levels of reliance on the various types of flexibility, why have you chosen to roll over the entire suite of provisions, and is that both necessary and a uh, proportionate approach? That may be for Ailish. Um, Chair, again, something that was done very quickly, um, and we had intended take the genuinely had intended to take the regulations um, away. And I've referred to the unpredictability that um, directors have actually um, 
referred um, to the um, department. And I think on, on the basis of that, that it was done quickly, um, that we weren't absolutely certain what way um, the second wave um, was going to um, work out, um, that we considered it important to keep everything in place rather than to start to unpick um, the regulations and keep some and, and drop um, other, um, other regulations. Again, I'm just going to make the point that um, the intention is to take the regulations away as quickly as we can possibly um, do it. And, and I'm genuinely hoping that that can be in advance of May next year. Can, yep. can I speak yep. to that? Is go that ahead, okay? David. Yes, go ahead. Um, yeah, I mean, just to back up what Elise said, Chair, um, the last surge um, didn't have as the huge of impact on on service delivery and children's services as we had predicted. This one feels very, very different and I don't think that we have even reached the peak yet. We still have the whole of the winter to do to go. So we don't actually know yet how much we're going to need to use the modified regulations or not. But it's really important just for me to emphasize again and what Alicia is saying, if we don't need to use them, we won't use them. And that's really important to say. Okay, and and in relation to and and everyone, everyone, everyone knew, and it was it was well anticipated that there would be a second surge at some point. That was that was taken for granted. And I take your point that there are elements of this surge which feel differently, and I'm going to come back to that in a, in a different section. However, what I would like to know now is what other steps were considered to avoid these, this legislation having to be brought back in. So was there consideration given to increase testing of those key staff to ensure they could go out and protect that, that key at-risk at cohort? What other, what other steps were considered rather than simply reintroducing these regulations? I suppose what we tried to do, Chair, too, was to introduce um, more capacity into the system too. You know, so I've described some of the um, funding that has been um, provided um, to um, children's services, um, uh, additional money going into our children's homes, but we've also put um, nearly an extra £5 million into family intervention um, services too, and, and that's all for the purpose of trying to um, increase capacity um, within um, services. Um, in terms of testing, um, it's hasn't been done, but it's certainly something um, that we can um, consider. Um, Deirdre, I don't know whether you want to say anything on the testing point at all. Well, I just, I think, you know, there is, we are hearing that um, staff and health and social care trusts will, are going to be, towards the end of the year, I think hopefully going to be tested more regularly. Um, so that will be really, really welcome and that will be less reliance completely on the, the regulations. But it's important that it's not just staff that have the issues in relation to the visits or the reviews. It's also families and other professionals. A lot of our work in children's services, Chair, as you will know, is multidisciplinary and interagency. So it, it's, it's, it's all those agencies really working together um, and it's, you know, foster care and to say foster cares. I mean, to give an example, we had to take three children into care recently and the 
both parents were positive and we couldn't get a foster parent to take the children, understandably so, because the children were also deemed to be positive. Now, that was really, really challenging um, for staff. Um, after um, a lot of negotiation and a lot of skilled work, we managed to actually get a placement for the children, but it was very, very challenging. Um, and it's also to point out that in the previous surge, not, not a single social worker was um, was positive. We had no COVID really in our community services within the trust. And this time it is completely different. Every day it changes. Every day there's more staff positive. There's more staff self-isolating. So it's, it's very, very different from the last time. We had all these systems in place the last time we had ghost rotas in residential care we had staff redeployed we were we were ready um for staff to um, be depleted and it didn't actually happen which was wonderful but it has happened significantly this time and it, and it really did take us a bit by surprise because we didn't expect certainly in Darien's Japan when it first kicked off we, we we weren't ready for that to be honest chair we thought that that we knew that there was going to be a winter surge but we thought the winter surge would be the end of October November but it actually started in September um, and it started in the community which has hadn't happened the last time so it did feel very very different. Okay and I do think that is a relevant area of concern that that that, that planning for that second surge wasn't up to up to scratch either in terms of potentially quantity and also timing. So I think there are lessons to be learnt there. And and my suggestion in relation to the staff, the, the testing of staff, does apply to all those multidisciplinary professions that you talk about. I'm talking about everyone here who's employed in protecting and caring for these vulnerable children. I believe should be should be there should be a as as much effort as can be put in place to protect the current capacity as well as building additional capacity, which I welcome also. So um, that's issue. I'm going back then to, to your point uh, that both of you have raised in relation to this feels very differently. Um, there's a lot more impact on staff this time around. Both of those things would indicate to me that there's much more likelihood of these regulations being used more regularly. Therefore, I'm wondering, and we have also heard that the data is being collected weekly, I'm wondering, therefore, what the rationale is for proposing that uh, monitoring reports would move to quarterly. And I recognise you've said you have considered, uh, in relation to the younger persons commissioner, you have to say, considered moving that to, to two monthly. But why would you? Why? What is the rationale for moving that at all? In terms of the concern now that we're going to see more potentially more usage. Okay. Sure. So, um, yes, the, the weekly data collection will continue, but that's not related to the monitoring uh, data that we also collect, connected to the and um, regulations that that's collected on a, on a monthly basis. So, I just want to to correct um, that. Yeah. Um, again, that decision was made at, at a point in time where we were very uncertain about how this was going to transpire. Um, you know, so you, you can't provide um, flexibility to the system and then I think impose um, something else upon it in terms of the collection of data and, and, and monitoring, maybe at a time when it, that is going to be very difficult um, to do. I mean, it's done between the trust, the board and the department, you know, so there's resource used in all three of those um, places. And we were just very conscious of, of, of the implications and the imposition upon those three parts of the system at potentially a very difficult um, time. 
I'm very happy, um, Chair, um, to reconsider um, that if, if that is a particular um, blockage and sticking point, um, particularly for the committee. Um, can I come in there? Yeah, go ahead, Deirdre. Uh, just to say, Chair, um, as Elish was said, there, there are two different data sets. The monthly data sets are, are appropriate monthly because a lot of the, the visits and the statutory functions take place on a monthly basis. So actually, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to do them any, any less. You know, wouldn't, wouldn't make sense to do it on a, on a weekly basis because it is every month that it that you notice it. But as Elish said, um, we don't have an actual uh, digital solution for this. So staff are manually having to put in um, into a SharePoint site whether or not a statutory visit took place or didn't take place, whether a review took place. And that's a whole lot of extra work for them to do. Um, whenever we started doing the monitoring, I mean, there was a, 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 a lot of um, resistance from staff initially to saying, you know, you're, you're giving me some flexibility, but now you're making me do this other stuff as well. And we had to re-emphasize to them that this was the law, you know, if we're going to modify the regulations, we need to monitor this very closely, et cetera, et cetera. So to do anything more than once a month, um, I think we would meet an awful lot of resistance from staff. I I but as I said, in any case... I wasn't suggesting more than once a month. I'm, I'm focusing on, on the less than once a month is what I'm focused on. All I was saying was that some of the data is being collected anyway. Why can't it be compiled and forwarded? It is also crucial in this context, while there is flexibility and flexibility is being provided here, accountability is also hugely important. And one of the, one of the only ways we can track the impact this is having, given the concerns you have raised that this is likely to be used much more widely this time, I think it would be, and I, I think it, uh, the committee would be, more reassured if we could keep an eye on that on a monthly basis. So can you commit to that, Eilish? Um, absolutely, Chair. We will commit to, um, uh, to implementing monthly um, monitoring and reporting. Thank you. I'm going to move on to members then. I have Paula and Pam on the phone and them coming into the room. So Paula, please. Um, thank you very much and good afternoon. Ladies, I have two, two questions of well, their own statements. The first one is the concern around the mental health of, of the young people in oh, care and looked after. Sorry, Paula, just let me let me interrupt you there for a second. Um, Deirdre, there's quite, I think it's your line, there's a bit of feedback like, like a crackling. I think it's on your line, Deirdre, but it seems worse when you're speaking. Could you ensure that you're on mute, Deirdre, only except for when you're actually talking? So go ahead again, Paula, sorry, sorry for the interruption. Thank you. It's in relation to the long-term impact of these restrictions and the whole COVID pandemic on the young people. We know a lot of the times that the um, impact can be delayed. So I'm just wondering, um, you, you mentioned there, I think Deirdre around, a lot of the young people seem quite upbeat and they're involved and you know almost engaged in the process. And I'm just wondering if none of that being masked or not really the impact not being properly felt. And the second issue, I have a constituent who, um, a young lady whose foster arrangements have broken down and she's quickly been replaced, but um, the whole stress is making her underlying health conditions worse. So, uh, plus, on top of that, she's had to self-isolate during this term already. So I'm not a portioning blame at all, and everybody has worked very quickly to get around her, but I'm very conscious of an A-level student and I'm very conscious um, that there needs to be some read across between what you are seeing and, and the young people you're working with and the impact of this lockdown in terms of their potential academic achievement come this next um, set of exams. And the question really is, how are you feeding in what you are seeing 
into the Education Authority and its own contingency plans for next year's summer exams. Thank you. Um, for your your first point, um, Paula, is um, the young people in residential care, the staff have a very, very sorry, good relationship sorry, with Gabriel, them. Gabriel, I'm going to check. I think actually there may be a problem with your headset. And I know we've asked some people to, to use a headset, but I think there's a crackling coming through. It may be your, can you come off your headset and give it a try, please, to see if that's any better? Is that better? Yes, I think it is. Yes. Oh. Yeah, go ahead, Gabriel. Okay. Okay, so um, Paula, your first point is that young people in residential care, I, I don't think they are, ma'am. The staff know them very, very well and they have very good relationships with them. And it, it's important to point out these modifications of the regulations. There's only delaying some stuff or allowing an extra time to take place. The young people still all will be seen and they'll all be seen by their social workers. Um, every every young person in care will have a uh, personal education plan. Um, so if they're at that age of, of um, uh, eighteen or you know seventeen and they're they're doing A levels, then there 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 should be ongoing pathway plans, education plans with education to make sure that they are um, working through or working towards what needs to happen for that particular young person. Um, and we've had some fantastic successes with young people in care where schools have been um, really, really helpful in making sure that they've got the absolute best. Uh, we've, you know, a few young people who are, are doing medicine and, and um, master's degrees and are doing really, really well. Um, the other thing to say is that, and Elish might be able to um, say more about this, but there is a regional therapeutic network that just started out using some of the transformation confidence and supply monies. Um, and that's looking at all young people in care, making sure that there is, um, that we increase the therapeutic support that we offer for those young people here and there who, don't forget, have already most of them come from a fairly traumatic background and they've all suffered some degree of trauma in their life, even if that trauma is lost from their families. Um, so all, all that healing needs to take place. Um, it, it's, it can be challenging if that young person's self-isolating um, or, you know, is, is more distant than normal. But like CAM service are all doing virtual conversations and com consultation through um, video link through this, um, which, you know, suits a lot of young people sometimes because um, that's how they like to communicate. Um, but just to assure you that there, there, there will be a pathway education plan working towards that and linking with education. Well, Sorry, I think just as a follow-up, I meant it not even so much in the care homes, but it was even just to look after um, young people. Uh, and uh, again, maybe even in some ways that haven't even processed the impact of this lockdown and maybe not being able to have visits with their siblings. And it's really just the early intervention around that. Yeah, and, and we're very, very mindful of that. In every case, is risk assessed. Uh, um, and children tell us all the time that they would rather, that one of the things that they want more than seeing their parents is seeing their siblings. Um, and we've heard that many, many, many times. And we're very, very mindful on that. And I will say, Paula, we've learned that over the years. You know, years ago, if mum didn't turn up for contact, then contact was cancelled. But young people have told us 
why did you cancel contact? I needed to see my brother and my sister, and actually they're more they're more important to me. So we have changed our practice significantly in relation to that, Paula. So they are seeing their siblings in so much as it, they're able to do with the foster care sh shield and it's working with, I mean, obviously, I mean, to be honest, our biggest anxiety is working with foster carers who are really anxious and um, particularly if they're elderly or shielding with children coming out of the house and going back in, into the house. Um, and that's where a lot of sports has to be, say that, you know, how, how do we manage that? You know, how do we make sure that the child sees their siblings or their parents and yet their foster parents still feel safe? Because this can put placements, um, make them very fragile and we don't want to do that either. So it's managing that whole process. We're very mindful of it. Thank you. Can I just make an, an additional point, um, just to say that we're working jointly, jointly with the Department of Education on a look after children's strategy, and I think there's a paper with both the Health Committee and the um, Education Committee at the minute, um, setting out um, what we plan to achieve by way of that strategy. And I think um, in that context, there's the scope for information to flow in the Department of Health and the and Department of Education. Um, relating to maybe some of the impacts that um, uh, th there will be for looked after um, children um, who may have to sit um, exams um, next year. So I just want to assure you that there's a mechanism for that to happen. Okay, thank you. I'm going then to Pam. Deputy Chair Pam. Go ahead, Pam. Thank you, Chair, and thank you both very much for um, your attendance at committee today. I think it's been a very interesting session, and it's really good to hear um, all that you've had to say today and certainly um i certainly don't underestimate the challenge of um of the of the jobs that you have and, and the very vital work that you're doing and actually um your your evidence backs up certainly my party's concerns around um not just COVID in itself um, but the impacts of poverty and the impacts of mental health especially on on children young people and those with with disabilities so I really do appreciate um, the very kind of personal uh, nature of the conversation today because I think that's really helpful for us going forward. And certainly as a party, we completely understand the, the need to extend the regulations. We don't like them. We understand that. And I, I, I take it from you, you don't actually like them either. I don't want to use them, but it's a, it's a necessary evil at this point. Um, continuity of care, obviously, um, and service to users is really imperative and I certainly wouldn't like to see that quarterly reporting happening so hopefully that that won't be the case and it stays more to more to a norm where possible but my uh, questions for you um, do you expect the current increase in child services referrals to level off or to continue to increase during the second wave and I'm also very um, conscious that we could have a third wave and that might not be too far behind the second wave if we even get out of the second wave um, and I wanted to also ask you around um, your opinion on, on how critical the reopening of schools has been to positive intervention in situations where children are at risk and bearing in mind that, um, that, that very large increase of um, child protection referrals uh, that is very concerning but I think even more concerning would be the idea that that there's no mechanism or no easy way for those referrals to be made because it's much better that that you know uh, that there are issues that need to be dealt with and looked at and that children need to be protected 
Um, and finally, I wanted to ask if there have been any asks made of the minister in terms of um, looking for additional skills or recruitment or resource in any form to, to deal with us. Okay, so if I can just come in first of all, and then Deirdre can come in behind me uh, if necessary. In response to your question about will the numbers continue to increase, I think it's I mean it's very difficult to predict. Um, although all of the information before us um, indicates that there has been an upward um, trajectory um, since the start of the pandemic, when there was an initial um, drop, and that kind of feeds into your 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 second question, which is about. Um, uh, the relationship between um, the numbers of working schools being opened or closed. Um, I think that initial drop in referrals, um, I think, was a direct consequence of schools um, being closed. I mean, interestingly, saw the numbers certainly relating to um, referrals from education. Um, we saw those numbers drop again when schools closed um, during um, the circuit um, break. So I think um, I think it's really important that there was a significance of having children in school, not only to meet their educational needs, but it also is, is a protective um, mechanism um, too for um, some um, for, for some um, children. Um, Deary, did you want to come in behind me at all um, on any of the questions? Yeah, yeah it's exactly the same. Um, so the, the last time, um, um, as you say, we had a reduction during the first search of referrals and networks, which is very worrying to us because those were there are main social referrals, those and the, the police, and we weren't getting the same level of referrals. And you know, um, I was always saying, you know, it's it, it's lockdown as the rest of the children. We don't know what's going home going on between closed doors. Uh, um, we didn't have our what we call you know our, our social guardians in the community our safety guardians which is you know a lot of the uh, education for instance being the main one um so our friends started going up um which uh, it, it was you know it was almost a perfect storm referrals started going up when staff started going off so it was kind of hard to kind of manage that process at the same time but um, you're absolutely right. Education, schools being back on is significant importance from a safeguarding point of view. Um, someone is seeing that child every day. They're getting fed every day. Um, schools can pick up if a child is happy or sad or what might be going on at home. Trying to supplement that. Um, I'm sorry to cut maybe, I'm sorry to cut across you there, and I'm sorry, to, but I'm just getting very conscious now of time. I have a few more members, and, and we are on a time limit for this room. So, if I could ask members to keep their questions very brief and to the point, and also the panel to keep the answers uh, similarly brief and to the point, uh, thank you very much. And I'll go then to Jonathan. Thank you, Chair. And look, this is a serious situation, and the increase of referrals to, to children's services since last year is extremely worrying for for me, and I'm sure the committee. More children are sadly on the child protection register, and that's something that has to be taken into account by not only those in the executive, but indeed wider society, reporting to the, the harmful impact that the pandemic and indeed the restrictions have had, particularly around schools, workplaces and homes. The welfare of a child is certainly something that must be crucial to the decision-making process. Has the increase in referrals been witnessed across the board, or are, we, or are there certain trusts disproportionately affected? And what work is the trust doing collectively 
uh, to, to maximise staff and share resources across Northern Ireland. Yeah, I'll I, I, I ask, I ask the question about um, whether or not and the, the increase relates to all trust. And the, the answer to that um, is yes. And, and again, this is information that we can provide um, to the committee on a trust by trust. But I can say um, that the, the increase has been experienced um, across um, the board. But one, one thing that I haven't actually um, brought to the attention of committee is that in, in response to the increase in, in numbers, um, one of the things that the department um, did was um, to ask other departments to work along with us, and, and there are five of us, five of us involved, um, to develop what we called a vulnerable children and young people um, plan. Um, uh, that plan has been consulted on um, and um, we're in the process of looking at the responses um, to that plan. So I think there'll be the opportunity maybe at a future stage to bring um, some information to the committee about the plan and what the plan um, contains. But my expectation is that um, there will be adjustments made to that plan um, to take account of some of um, what has been um, said in response um, to consultation because I expect that some people will have some very firm ideas about um, how we can actually support some of these very vulnerable children. Okay, thank you. I'll just answer the second question. Yeah. Um, just to say the directors of Children's Services, um, Jonathan meets on a weekly basis during this pandemic. We, we share a lot of knowledge, resources, um, information. We have a joint action plan that all the social workers right throughout Children's Services use in relation to how they would prioritise services, et cetera, et cetera. We have created a lot more of regional facilities that, that we use um, right throughout and everybody has access to. We have the um, psychological therapies um, for looked after children that we're working on together. So there's a lot of cross working right across um, trust. And we've, for the first time this year, we've done a, a Northern Ireland wide recruitment of social workers as well so and we've helped each other out in relation to that so a lot of that's cross working going on thank you uh jerry thanks um if you expand upon your point um i couldn't hear it i think it was the got caught out about some pressures being and not just COVID. i'm assuming that's staff shortages so if you expand upon that um, and i'll go through a couple of quick questions um has there been any consideration about uh, foster workers being re-designated uh, as key workers. Um, remote visits, um, online visits, uh, void pack, I met a few months ago and they were concerned about about that not being suitable for, for many in their um, organisation and who they represent. And finally, just on the revocation of the regulations, um, I think it was Yalish said uh, that you want to do it as early as possible. Um, is that based on the R rate, on the minister's recommendation? Uh, what is the threshold uh, for when these uh, um, regulations will be revoked? Thanks. Okay, so let me start with your question about um, some of the non-COVID um, pressures, and I specifically referenced um, unaccompanied um, and separated asylum asylum seeking children and young people, um, and there has been um, a, a fairly steep increase. The numbers of those children who have come into Northern Ireland um, over the course of the last couple of months, and that, that has just created additional pressures 
um, for the um, system and we've had to find um, placement options um, for those young people because our, our regional um, reception and, and assessment centre um, has been operating um, to capacity and one of the options being considered at the minute is the um, establishment of a facility within Deirdre's um, area within the um, Western um, Trust. Um, and in terms of um, the question about whether or not foster carers are key workers, absolutely, foster carers um, would um, be um, key workers for, uh, for uh, and anywhere that anywhere that the where the term key worker applies would apply to um, foster carers. I think Deirdre has addressed your point about um, remote visits, um, but um, she might want to add um, to that. And in terms of the revocation of the regulations, um, you're quite right. I mean, that will be related to what public health advice is available um, to us um, at, at any stage um, in the future. So if it is suggested um, that we can um, go back to um, business as usual, or the regulation for monitoring itself shows um, that the regulations are not being um, relied upon and do not need um, to be um, relied upon, then I think we could make a decision on the back of that alone. Sure, guys, ask for, I know we're, we're pressed with time, but just on the issue of the um, uh, asylum seekers maybe not getting enough or there's pressure on social work for, for those community, can we get something in writing from yourselves, Eilish and, and Dirty, on that, just to expand upon that for, for our benefit? We absolutely can give you something. There's actually quite a lot being done um, in that area at the minute to actually respond to some of um, the pressures um, that, are, um, that, that are in place at the minute. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you, Eilish and, uh, Eilish and Deirdre, for those. Just to point out to members that we have asked for a briefing on the Vulnerable Children and Young People Plan once that consultation response has been collated. So we, we should be receiving further information on that. So, listen, thank you both for your presentation today and for your, your uh, answers to members' questions. I very much like to welcome your commitment in relation to the monitoring. I think that does provide some assurance to the committee and to the sector and to, indeed, the vulnerable people involved, um, and that's welcome. I think, uh, I think it would be good that if we see further extensions, or if, hopefully we won't need future potential extensions, but that those be considered on a on a, a individual measure basis, that they're not just rolled forward. And also, I welcome your commitment today, and I think the committee will keep an eye on the situation regarding the uh, the revocation of these measures. As soon as that is, as soon as that is practically possible, I think that's something that, and, and I understand that you have have committed to that, and that you are conscious of that. So thank you, and good luck in the future with your very, very important work. Thank you. Okay, okay members. Um, any other comments? Then members want to make in relation to any of this. Um, so. Uh, so we we have yes go ahead Jerry. just just a brief i know we're kind of rushing through that for the time but i mean i suppose it's a it's a comment about um um there will be revokement through the public health is better i know it's a slightly paraphrasing what was said there and i suppose in, in one level that's that's fair enough but another level i think we just need to focus down on that when that would be uh, is it the r rate um coming down is it, you know less infection so uh, no proposals on that but just a comment i think we should just keep an eye on that and when it's safe to do so um obviously we need to see these um you know guidelines or regulations revoked rather than a 
keeping them on for an extra two or three months when it's not necessary, to be, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, I think that's a valid point. I think we should keep a very, and that's partly why I welcome the, the monthly monitor, and I think we should keep a very close eye on that situation. This is a particularly vulnerable cohort of, of young people, and we do need to uh, play our part in terms of uh, protecting them. Um, I do, I do note that the, the, the monitoring issue has been addressed. Should we also uh, recommend that, as, as I mentioned there, but should we put this in writing, that we recommend that future extensions are considered on an issue, a measure-by-measure measure basis, rather than, and also to just note the, uh, our, our desire that these would be revoked at the earliest possible opportunity? Are members content with that? And then I'll go to the formal. The formal, yes, go ahead, Pam. Yeah, just to say that um, I don't think they got a chance to answer my last week about the question, which was asking whether they had made any request to the minister for additional resource. And it kind of it, it kind of tags on to your point when you made to them when you spoke about testing and that. I think uh, it is it is really important that, uh, that the department look at at new novel ways of, of dealing with this and, and trying to find a way forward because it's, the child protection issue is just too important um, to let it um, lapse in any way or relax in any way, given that you know certainly any, any form of, of lockdown is actually for some um, children in particular is very, very dangerous, a very dangerous place for them to be. So um, I think they do need to be looking at more innovative ways um, of actually going forward, and we, I think we can assume that there's going to be more of what we we've had in the last um, number of months um, for the foreseeable future. And we don't want to see these regulations in it for any longer than they need to be. So I think it's important that that they do look at, at, at new ways of going forward and look at what additional resources they need mm -hmm. to to make it work. Yeah, and I think that that is an important area to keep. They did reference some additional resource and ongoing for the for the recruitment, um, but I do think that is a, a significant. Uh, you know, alternatives should be be getting considered on an ongoing basis, and I think we should keep an eye to that as the monitoring reports come through. So, um, if there's no other issues, then can I ask members to formally our formal consideration of this of this SR. Uh, so, can I ask members to agree formally that the committee has considered SR 2020/235, the Children's Social Care Coronavirus Temporary Modification of Children's Social Care Amendment Regulations NA 2020, and has no objection to the rule? Are we agreed? Agreed. Thank, thank you, members. Okay, members, moving on, and I have an eye on that we, we do need out of this room by 1:30. But in terms of our forward work program. Item 15 there, can I refer members to the draft forward work programme at tab 15.1 of the pack, which includes the list of organisations who have requested to brief the committee. Are members content to note the forward work programme? Yes, members content, thank you. Can I also refer members then to the list of international academics suggested by RAIS at tab 15.2 of table papers? Are members content that we seek an oral briefing from these academics on test and trace to inform our considerations? Yeah, members content. Thank you. Um, any other business then? Do members have any other business? Jerry? Thanks, Chair. Uh, just an issue that's been raised with me the last few days. Uh, I've been informed that um, some Belfast healthcare workers um, are being issued with uh, clamps uh, and penalty notices on their car when they're 
in and around um, hospitals and healthcare facilities, certainly uh, in the Belfast area at least. Uh, I think that's unfair and there shouldn't be penalties on any workers, especially healthcare workers who are working through a pandemic. Um, so I would just like to propose that we as a committee write to the, the Minister to express our concern about that, uh, or our opposition to that, and for his department to uh, look at this and try to get the issue resolved as a matter of, of urgency. Yeah, and I, I was concerned actually to see that that as well, given that my understanding is that parking charges have been revoked in light of the in light of the pressure that staff are under, and I think it's it, it sort of it, it is a bit um, inconsistent if trusts or I, I, I I'm not sure where the responsibility lies in terms of individual car parks, but I think the minister and the department certainly are are best placed to explore that. Jonathan, thanks, chair. And I was going to bring this point up myself because I have had it raised, but I, I think it's absolutely scandalous that on trust sites potentially we have healthcare workers with their vehicles being clamped given the pandemic and the situation that we find ourselves in. I think it's totally unacceptable and I would support the call to write directly to the Minister to ensure that we have uh, some clarity on this matter and ensure there's a way forward that ensures the continuity right across trust sites. Thank you, Jonathan. I have Pam and then we'll come to Orlea and then I have Alan. Yes, Pam? Thanks, Chair. Yes, and I would back Jerry's call there as well. Um, and, and I know it's different in this particular wave because health services have tried to um, continue. So, and we know that parking is a, a, a premium and the availability is very difficult, especially around the Belfast area. Uh, but certainly, I don't agree with um, healthcare staff having to pay these charges um, in a pandemic or out of a pandemic. But I think. Yeah, it's additional stress that that really our healthcare workers should not be facing at this time. I think it's, I think it's really terrible that you know the idea of coming out of a long shift, of doing such good work, looking after us all, and facing a clamp on your car is horrendous. So I'd back Jerry's call for that as well. Absolutely, thank you, Pam or Leah. Yes, it's just to say that um, we we were made aware of, of the the same issue as well, um, and. I know that I'm not sure if Pat's still on the line, but Pat Sheehan, um, he made contact this morning with the department and with Kathy Jack, the chief executive of the Belfast Trust. But it would certainly do no harm, absolutely, to support Jerry and everyone else in the committee. Maybe writing off um, correspondence because it's um, it's just not good enough. Okay. Thank you, Alan. Yeah, I, I would have I would have thought too that a letter, if it is only in the Belfast Trust, which I assume that's what it is up to date. I think we should be fair in the letter off as a matter of urgency to the, the trust uh, as well, because you, writing to the minister is going to kick off a whole process, but I, I think that we need to get to the, the centre of this right away. But I wonder if Jerry could maybe share with us if he, if he had been speaking. I, I saw it on Facebook and it did seem quite disgraceful, but you know, we're, we're maybe sometimes we don't always know the full circumstances and we don't know the number of people that are involved, but I wonder if Jerry, Jerry could maybe share with us if he had been uh, talking to the unfortunate person who came out to see a clamp, which must be a, an awful situation, particularly when you finish the shift. But the, uh, has that person challenged it with the authorities in the hospital? Uh, and what sort of explanation have they been given? Have they been given an apology? Have they been, have they been issued with a fine? Or, and, and what was the reasons given for the well, vehicle being... Alan, I, I don't want to go into specific cases here, to be quite honest, um, and I don't want to put a member on the spot in relation to that either. I think the issue generally is of concern to the committee. I think that's how I will approach it. I do agree that the Belfast Trust, given we know that there's been a case there, I think we should uh, 
write potentially to all the trusts and the minister just to be copying the letter across to them to, to try to head off a, a similar situation arising elsewhere. So I don't think we should limit it to Belfast, but I think we should copy in, uh, what, what copy in the other trusts. What would worry me, Mr Chairman, with not knowing the extent of the problem or, or what excuse the person has been given, is let's say that the car was badly parked, maybe uh, stopping ambulances, getting into the ambulance station. I don't know. I don't know. But it, you know, if it were something like that, you know, there would be well. I, I take circumstances. Yeah. I, t I take it that could form part of the response. Go ahead. It's a quick response. I know several people, Alan, that have been health care workers have been uh, clamped on an issue with with fines. I'm sure other members uh, know more uh, and different people as well. So I know it's it's happening to more than one individual, and I think it's it is of concern, and it's effectively another another tax on healthcare workers who are trying to keep us uh, um, safe. So I was proposing, uh, sorry, uh, back the sort of the amendment on the minister and the trusts to make them aware and to make our yeah. uh, opposition clear. Sure. Okay, thank you, thank you, members. I think that's a, that's a, a useful a useful point to make. So, um, members, that concludes our meeting today. Unless no other no other business. So, um, just before we move into closed session to continue our consideration of evidence on, on the care homes inquiry, our ongoing work in that regard, I would advise that our next meeting will be on Thursday, the nineteenth of November, at nine thirty a.m. here in the Senate Chamber. So thank you members that's this meeting concluded. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly 